It's time to get away in a new Hyundai vehicle during the Hyundai Getaway Sales Event at Woodhouse Hyundai. The Hyundai lineup of sedans and SUVs has the capability you need and technology and features you want, like the all-new 2023 Hyundai Palisade and Hyundai Tucson. This holiday season, get into a vehicle that will give you confidence with Hyundai Owner Assurance, America's best 10-year, 100,000-mile warranty. Visit us online at woodhousehyundaiofomaha.com. This episode of The Sean Ryan Show is brought to you by Simply Safe. We took a, a guided missile cruiser, jumped on that, and hauled ass all the way to Bahrain. We were in Bahrain for a little bit, uh, and then we were scheduled to go do some other shit, and then that's when the coal got hit. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. A total of six sets of remains uh, have been found on board the coal during the course of today. everyone it's 2020 and the need for security is increasing every single day simply safe is monitored by professionals 24 hours a day seven days a week they will call the police if necessary it's super affordable 50 cents a day there's no long-term commitments and the best part it's shipped right to your front door the first thing i did was beef up all of the entry exit points starting with the main entrance. I use the doorbell cam to catch porch pirates. Trust me, there's a lot of people that want to grab my package. The next thing I did was use the window and door sensors on every opening window, on every opening door throughout the office. I use the motion sensor to track motion. If the motion sensor is triggered, it alarms my phone. I get a notification. I know if something's moving. I use the glass breaking sensor on all the windows. If the glass is broken, it notifies my phone. It alarms the base station. It notifies everybody that there's been a break-in. For the interior, I use the Simply Cam. It's triggered by motion. There's a carbon monoxide detector. There's a smoke detector. There's a freeze detector that you can put on your pipes. There's a panic button when I get scared and there's a water detector that'll let you know if your washer is overflowing or maybe there's a flood all of which will notify my phone if there happens to be a problem if you want to boost your security whether it's home at the office or anywhere else go to simplysafe.com slash ve Oh, by the way, you're also supporting the Sean Ryan Show. So thank you, Simply Safe, for supporting the show, and you all be safe. As you're walking, you could actually see a fucking dungaree and a boondocker from about the knee down hanging out of the out of the fucking where now it's a ceiling, it was a floor, and now it's a ceiling, somebody's fucking leg just hanging there. 
we had a 60 gunner and a couple of snipers and a law rocket. Clint Emerson and I uh, actually were the two guys that um, zeroed in on him and fucking just swarmed him and backed him up and he was like, oh shit, you know, he had MP5s down his fucking throat. And I mean, it just the, the smell of, of 19 semi-submerged, blown up dead bodies trapped in a fucking boat. The bodies were in there still. You had a fucking Navy SEAL operator quit on target in the middle of a fucking operation. All of a sudden, all fucking hell breaks loose. Like gunfire just erupts and it's every fucking where. Like an Iraqi flag, like coming down and, and crushing the fucking skull apart. Fucking insane. I mean, you kicked the fucking goddamn war off. Welcome back to the Sean Ryan Show. This is episode 005. We've brought you a very special guest, but for starters, I want to thank everyone who's become a member and is supporting the show on Patreon. You're going to see the benefits of that support. We've hired an entire film crew, and we're hoping they stick around. I would also like to thank all of you who took the time to go over to iTunes and leave us a review. We now have 5,300 reviews on iTunes. We continue to be a top 100 show in the category, and that's because of you. If you haven't done that yet, please go to iTunes, leave us a review, type in a word, even if it's just one word, that's what we need to make this show rank. And lastly, ladies and gentlemen, Every single guest that has been on this show is the definition of an American hero. We want to bring these heroes the most exposure possible. We want to take this show to Netflix. I've posted a link. I put it at the top of the comments. Click the link. Request the Sean Ryan Show. Hit submit. That lets Netflix know who we are. Let's take this thing to the next level. Which brings me to my next guest, 005. Ladies and gentlemen, he is a world-renowned canine trainer. He trains dogs for the SEAL teams, for the SWAT teams, and just about every other government agency you can think of. He's been on the New York Times bestseller list three times. He is a veterinary powerhouse that I personally look up to. He was on the initial invasion of Iraq. He responded to the USS Cole. We've broken this into two different shows. The first part, all of his combat time as a SEAL. The second, the life of a canine warrior overseas in combat, what those dogs go through and what they deal with when they come home. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm very proud to bring you my next guest, Mr. Mike Ridland. Mike. John. Sfagatum. 
to the Sean Ryan show. Uh, Did I butcher the shit out of that? I'm gonna have to, I'm gonna have to, is that a Norwegian fucking? That's my best attempt at say welcome in Tagali. <laughs> oh, okay. Where the fuck did you learn Tagali? <laughs> I learned Tagalog uh, at North Island uh, Naval Base or Naval Air Station, I guess. Um, and it was after my, it was after a deployment uh, and it was during the whole Force 21 thing. And uh, so our platoon got back from deployment like in mid-February or, or so. And, uh, and we weren't forming up until the following January because of the whole reorganization bullshit. And so it was kind of like everybody had to go find shit to do. Uh, I had re-enlisted prior or on that deployment for Arabic. Uh, but when we got back and, and all of the shuffle and reorg stuff, this was right before 9-11, was that uh, they said, turns out you guys are now a Southeast Asia platoon. You're going to Guam and the Philippines. So if you're not going to Arabic, you're going to Tagalog. And I was like, but I... It's in my contract. I re-enlisted for fucking Arabic. And they're like, yeah, tough shit. Here, oh, you're nice. going to Tagalog. So I, uh, I spent um, about, I don't know, I think it was five, six months of all day, every day, Monday through Friday. Like, that was my job. Me and uh, there was, I don't know, seven or eight other uh, other other people, mostly team guys. There was a couple other, I don't know why, who the fuck they were or why they were in there. But, um, yeah, we sat there all day, every day from this uh, older uh, Filipino lady that that was teaching us fucking Tagalog, and nice. uh, of course, like the the true team guys that we are, we you know conned her into teaching us all the shit that she wasn't supposed to teach us. The know, important and, stuff and making her blush and feel uncomfortable. <laughs> how do you how do you say ass fuckery in in Tagalog? How, can you teach us how to say that? But uh, yeah, so that, that was the that's the story behind it. We did end up going to Guam uh, and and then ultimately to the Philippines. Uh, for about six weeks, which was which was neat. At the end of that, I wouldn't say that I was fluent in it, but I was I was conversationally like for basic conversation, I was I was pretty close to fluent. Yeah. Uh, as long as it's been, I, uh, you know, it, it's I, I have forgotten a lot of it. You know, uh, I could probably pick it back up in a matter of weeks if I if I really tried, but uh, a lot of it I don't remember. But you never knock the dust off. See if it's still there. Uh, no, not really. I mean, once in a while, like, you know, I'll run into somebody that's that you can tell speaks it by, you know, their their accent or they tell you they're from, you know, wherever, and I'll string together some bullshit and, and they'll laugh and, you know, because I probably butchered half of it. Yeah. Uh, or insulted their mom or whatever. But, uh, but yeah, no, I, that's, I mean, where are you going to use it in Texas, right? Yeah. yeah. Well, man, I'm uh, really excited about this and uh i've been wanting to have you on for a long time and i think we canceled two or three times but i just want to say i am fucking ecstatic that you're here uh sitting in that chair and um props to you man you are a great role model for people and uh and i think you're a huge inspiration for guys that are are starting businesses that are coming home, uh, especially in the veteran uh, community and the combat uh, spec ops guys coming home. And <clears throat> I mean, you're one of the guys that honestly, that I really look up to in the business world. Um, you've kept your business all class, you know, and uh, a lot of these vet companies, it's all fucking tits and ass and, and uh, fuckery and, and, that's all cool, but when your entire model is based off of that, I mean, we've seen it. You, they come, 
and they go. And uh, you've been in business for quite a while and it's stood the test of time and uh, you just continue to grow. And, and uh, I think anybody that's in the business world, especially the guys uh, coming back, they got a great example uh, by looking at what you're doing. And uh, it's fucking amazing what you've done. And um, I can't wait to dig into it. Yeah. So. Well, shit. I I almost don't even know what to say to that, other than I, I appreciate it very much. It uh, it's you know certainly not anything that uh, that I feel like my level of competency has contributed to to it. I think I, I'm just stubborn and and have uh, you know tried to always do the best I can with what I have and and look at it from a long game standpoint. Um, but you know uh, I, I would say you know I, I feel feel that exact same way about you and yours. You know I mean it's. It's really neat to see, uh, you know, guys that I know and trust and and like, um, you know, doing well and, and being successful and trying new things. You know, you, you've uh, really set the bar uh, at such a an immediate or, or early phase with with your show, and it's just to me, it's it's really neat to see. I love seeing guys that, that I know, love, trust, and and like succeed. So, uh, hats off to you right back. I appreciate it. Oh, well, thank you, man. Yeah. Well. Uh, I always kick this thing off, and I, I, I love to give presents. So if you look <laughs> yeah. right over there. It's like some Johnny Carson shit right there. Hey, you know, <laughs> any guesses? Awesome. Well, I see my book in there, so. Uh, Is that your, I wanted, I, that was just a recommendation. You know. <laughs> yeah. I thought you might, might like to read that, so I know the guy that wrote it. Yeah, who's this asshole? <laughs> That's fucking classic. There's two other ones that guy wrote, but uh, they're believe it or not, they're fucking hard to come by on Amazon. <laughs> yeah, and, no, uh, I know they it. still haven't arrived. I uh, I must admit I have cracked into these, and uh, Jesus Christ, they are good. Everybody that uh, says they're the best they've had, I was like, yeah, whatever, they're fucking gummy bears. But uh, on the no bullshit, these uh, these are phenomenal fucking gummy bears. Thank you. Those will be gone before I leave here, probably. But. Right on. <laughs> oh, the ass blaster. Now that is. The Ass Blaster 4000. So, um, Dude, that's fucking great. God damn. <laughs> oh, so the next time we all yeah. run out of toilet paper, you're good to go. You know? but, oh, that's uh, fucking great. For, uh, there's, I'm sure there's some people that are like, the fuck does that mean that didn't watch our, uh, um, our, our fucking quarantine Zoom call that we all had? But uh, that's fucking great, man. I love it. That's why I'm gonna roll the clip right now from that video. So uh, for those of you that don't know, here it is. Slow B for your ass. You have two ass blasters, Sean, oh, at your Yeah, house? we did. That's the first thing I did when I saw there was no shit paper. I was like, all right, we're getting he, some of these. He, Mike, he actually sent me the link for like the homemade bidet thing. Hell yeah. <laughs> like, Bro, it's, it's amazing. Maybe, it's amazing. Look, maybe I've been watching too much porn during this quarantine, but ass blaster <laughs> means something totally different to me. <laughs> Can I crack into these now or what? If you want to. Yeah, I'm going to open them. I'll eat them, eat them on camera even. So uh, I checked out your Wikipedia page. There's some uh, interesting shit on there. So they give you credit for kind of starting the Epstein didn't kill himself. Really? Yeah, on there. You didn't know that? I didn't know that. Yeah, that it's right there on, uh, I think, second paragraph. So I also for sure didn't kick that shit off. <laughs> well, Joe, Joe Rogan did. I mean, did to my, he? To my knowledge. Well, they gave you credits on your Wikipedia page. 
So do you want to make another statement? Because uh, his uh, right-hand woman is uh, just got picked up. Yeah, I'm, I'm assuming Maxine, Maxine Giswell didn't kill herself either, but... Not yet. Yeah, it's, uh, it's amazing. What do you think? She's going to make it to court? Um, yeah, I think so. With her, I think um, it's maybe a little different in that I think they have far less on her. Uh, obviously, they have enough to arrest her and all that, but... I don't think it's as slam dunk probably as it is uh, with with Epstein. So I suspect that with the, I mean, she for sure has dirt on people. But I think it, it seems like from everything that I've heard preliminarily is that it's more like he said, she said. It doesn't seem like they have near as much of a case against her. Again, not that they don't have one, but um, so I think it's largely going to depend on how that that shakes out i think you know she's probably not in in as much danger as he was but you never know i mean i don't you know pretend to have uh, any any knowledge of the inner workings of that whole you know fucking clown show so um i, I will say this like if something did happen and the country doesn't fucking explode because of it then we're fucking doomed you know yeah. i mean so i do find it odd that they sent her to uh, the exact same fucking place I saw that. You know, I couldn't believe that shit either. Yeah. So, um, yeah. I mean, I don't know if that's like rubbing our face in it or what, but I, I honestly thought that was a fucking meme when I saw that. Yeah. But um, yeah. so, yeah, I don't know. I, I'm still fucking surprised that that's on uh, the Wikipedia page. I didn't, I didn't know that. But, but uh, yeah, yeah, check it out. There's weird. some interesting shit on there. <laughs> Maybe so, I don't want to look at it. <laughs> yeah. But um, all right. Well. I did a lot. I honestly, I thought you were going to be really easy to research because there's um, so much information out there on you, and uh, it turned out to be the exact opposite. There's so much information out there on you that I just, uh, I wish I could have covered it all, but I, I couldn't, and uh, I wish I could have you here for a fucking week uh, to dig into that head of yours, but. So I think we're going to break this up into two podcasts, actually. I'm going to do uh, this one, uh, which will be all your personal stuff, and then uh, the next one to be um, all the dog stuff, which yeah. is, um, you know, phenomenal information. And uh, But I just kind of want to start with, uh, you know, quick overview of your childhood. I know you grew up in Iowa, and um, but just a brief overview, overview of your childhood and, and, uh, we'll kind of go from there. So, sure. So I was born in uh, Northern Iowa, uh, in the late seventies. And, uh, you know, it's weird looking back on it now. I think a lot of people have, uh, feelings of nostalgia towards their childhood, uh, kind of almost wherever they're from, because that, that's what they know. That's their childhood or whatever. But for me, it's become, uh, increasingly so, uh, that way, with the things that are going on now. Like I find myself kind of longing for that eighties childhood of no cell phones, no internet, you know, riding your fucking bikes everywhere, watching MacGyver, Knight Rider, A-Team, Rambo, playing guns, fucking listening to ACDC and fucking Guns N' Roses. And it was just like, life was so much fucking simpler. And not just because we were kids, um, you know, just I think America was a much simpler place. I think the world was a simpler place that way. I think it's one of the double-edged swords to the internet, but uh, growing up in, in that environment was, um, it was just a really neat time and place to, to be at. You know, the the town that I'm from, Waterloo, is is not a, a big town, but it's not, you know, a town of 300 either. There's, 
you know, 60 or 70,000 people. And, and so you have kind of all the amenities that you would like, but it doesn't have that big city feeling. You know, you can drive 10 minutes in any direction and be out in the middle of fucking cornfields or, uh, you know, be, you know, isolated and, and away from everybody and, and whatever. So it's a pretty slow paced area. It's, it's not too dissimilar to where you're at here uh, in terms of kind of the, the uh, pace at which people operate and how they take care of things and how they treat each other and, and what have you. So I, I liked that growing up. Um, but it was, uh, just, just a, a fun time to, to be a kid. You know, uh, I swam competitively. I had, uh, two older brothers, a younger sister and, uh, our family, you know, it was, it's weird. It was like, uh, fucking leave it to beaver. Honestly. Um, I mean, my parents never fought to this day. I've never heard my parents argue not one fucking time. So you know, they're still together. Yeah. Still married. They've been married for you know, almost 50 years. And, uh, you know, I, I've never heard them raise their voice at one another. Not once, you know, never, awesome. never argued about anything, never fought about anything. Uh, you know, they get along great and they, they had a, uh, and I will say as a father, um, you know, I look to them, uh, you know, honestly in awe at this fucking point, you know, now that I have kids that are teenagers and I don't, I don't know how they, they parented the way that they did. Um, they did a far better job than I'm doing for sure. Um, it's just, you know, I, I marvel at their ability to, um, be strict enough to, to raise good kids that are well behaved, but not so strict to where your kids are doing shit despite you, you know, um, and, and that's what I've, I've kind of struggled with. But, uh, you know, so looking back on that aspect of my childhood, my parents were fucking amazing. My family was amazing. Um, you know, the, the school system in which I grew up in was, was mostly good. High school had, had some bumpy parts. How uh, big was uh, your class, graduating class? Graduating class, I think, was just shy of 400, maybe. Okay. Um, the, the school itself had, I think, 2,000, 2,500. It was a pretty big school. Um, but the, in, at that time, it was, you know, the, the early 90s, 92 to 96 is when I was in high school. And, uh, you know, race relations then were, were fairly tense, kind of similar to, to where they're at now. Uh, they got better, and then now they're worse. I mean, it's fucking weird that way. But my uh, my high school, uh, there's there's only two, two uh, public high schools in my, in my hometown. There's east and west. And uh, the east side of town is, is more predominantly black, and the west side of town is more predominantly white. Um, there's a river, the Cedar River, that splits the fucking town in half and, uh, or thereabouts. And so there was a lot of busing. That uh, was, you know, a, a time in, in different states where experimenting with, you know, busing a bunch of kids from one side of town to the other side and vice versa. And so there was there was a fair bit of that going on and it just caused fucking problems. Um, you know, there was there was, like I said, some racial tension that was pretty significant. Rodney King riots, uh, when they happened, it was when I was a freshman in high school. And uh there was a you know, some some rioting that happened in our high school where I got the fuck beat out of me. Um, you know, but uh and, and so my high school experience, you know, I'd say elementary and junior high was was pretty uh, pretty fun to look back on. High school, I I didn't particularly fucking enjoy. It was uh, it was kind of a mess. I, I was glad to be done with it. You know? Well, on just about every everything I've researched, you always bring up an incident that happened in high school. And correct me if I'm wrong, but uh, it's one of the things that actually uh, it was a major motivator for you joining the SEAL teams, if yeah. I remember correctly. And uh, so, what kind of happened there? I know you got fucking jumped. Yeah, so um, I, I was a freshman in high school, and I was fucking small. Um, I was five foot four and one hundred and five pounds. Uh, 
um, it was a Friday and uh, it was during the swim season. And as a freshman swimmer, uh, they, they do these initiation. They did. They, they probably don't do them anymore because I'm sure it's considered hazing or something fucking dumb like that. But, um, you know, we had to do stupid shit like wear, wear your Speedos over your clothes, you know, and wear goggles and, you know, just dumb little things like that. On Fridays, they would fuck with you and make you wear stupid shit or or whatever. And, um, but my second oldest brother was a senior when I was a freshman. So we went to lunch together. He had a, had his license and drove my, my dad's car, um, to, uh, to lunch. We came back, we were running a little bit behind, uh, in true fashion of my second oldest brother. Love you, Jake, but let's be honest, you're always fucking a little behind. The, uh, is that the, the halls were relatively empty and, and it was a three-storied uh, high school. And so I came back and I was on the third floor. I was running down a hallway and I remember uh, a good friend of my dad's actually was a chemistry teacher and he was, he like nodded, you know, tipped his cap or whatever to me as I was running past and kind of shook his head like, you know, there's fucking George's son running behind, you know, laughing or whatever. And I went, uh, opened these two double doors to go down a, a set of stairs all the way down to the first floor because I was going to Spanish. And uh, as soon as I swung the door open, I was like, holy shit. And as, as I'm getting ready to step down the, the first step, uh, I just see just boom, I just get fucking blindsided. And there was two two single file column rows of, uh, there's probably between 40 and 50 black students that were you know taking up the entire stairwell because there was that many of them running up and they were just running through the hallways beating the fuck out of anybody that was white and they were, you know, throwing trash cans through fucking windows and knocking, uh, water, uh, or, uh, drinking fountains off the fucking wall. I mean, just trashing the place and, and beating up white people. Uh, oh, yeah. so this was like, they were fucking kicking the shit out of everybody. Everybody. Yeah. It wasn't just me. It was, I mean, it was like a race riot almost. There was a bunch of people that got fucked up. Oh, fuck. And so I start walking or I start running down the stairs. And again, I, you know, it was like running a gauntlet. I mean, textbook gauntlet scenario. I'm, I'm trying to make my way down. And as I'm going, it's just, you know, they're all taking their fucking turns while they're running up and I'm running down. And, you know, luckily they didn't stop and corner me and, and you know, I mean, they, they probably would have fucking beat me to death, honestly. But um, I, I managed to make it all the way down, just again, getting pummeled the whole way down. By the time I got... Uh, down to the bottom, um, you know, every time I got hit, again, I was a, a little fucker. And so I'd, I'd run into, it was a brick wall, uh, you know, going down. And so the whole right side of my face was all fucked up. The whole left side of my face was all swollen and, and fucked up. And I kind of stumble into Spanish class. And the teacher, uh, the teachers at that point, they, they knew what was going on. And even then, like our administration and, and the staff, they were scared of, like they didn't know what to do, you know, like they didn't want to stop them because, you know, they would probably be considered racist, um, you know, and they didn't want to discipline them. So nobody got in trouble at that, at that point, there were no security cameras either back then. Um, they, so they didn't do shit, you know, they, they did absolutely nothing about it, you know, and I stumbled in, I sat down and I'll never forget, um, you know, I, I was sitting there and there was three or four black guys that came in, came in several minutes after I did breathing heavy. And I, I knew they were, they were in on it. And, uh, you know, just that, that was a very pivotal moment for me for a couple of reasons. Um, number one was that the way that my dad responded to it was not what I expected. Looking back on it, I, I thank fucking 
whatever universal power you believe in that, that he handled it the way that he did uh, in much more of a tough love scenario and that a lot of parents, and I think even putting myself in his shoes, would you know storm down to the fucking high school and demand some sort of consequence and, and that action be taken and whatever. And he didn't have the, you know, I'm scared policy at all. It was life's not fucking fair. People are going to fuck with you. People are going to are going to do mean shit to you. And you've got to figure out how to fucking deal with it. I know you're fucking scared. You probably don't want to go back. You're going to go back tomorrow and you're going to face whoever the fuck did it and you're going to deal with it. Shit. You know, and, uh, you know, for me, I, like at the time I was like, what the fuck? You know, it's like, why are you not going and, and fucking doing something about it? And and again, I looking back on it now, I'm I'm really glad that he handled it that way because it forced me to do that. You know, it 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 was the shit or get off the pot moment for me as a 14 year old of realizing that, you know, if if I can't fucking figure it out, like nobody else is going to hold my hand and make sure that that everything is fucking perfect. You know, and and, and for me, that was especially going into the community of, of naval special warfare, that was a, uh, an incredibly valuable fucking lesson I learned at that age that, you know, don't, don't depend on any motherfucker else, yeah. you know, to, to make sure that uh, your shit's taken care of. You, you figure it out, you know. And uh, so um, I was – the other kind of part of that I think that was pivotal is that the, the motivation that that, that – just instantly fucking instilled in me was huge you know mm-hmm. like the i was already a pretty competitive athlete and and you know i hated to lose and i you know i worked really hard at sports and and everything that i gave a shit about i i was really you know hyper competitive but this took it for sure to the next level you know because i just kept thinking about that and even there were times like in hell week and in buds training where where i f- kind of flashed back to that if i was you know, wavering a little bit in motivation or whatever. Like the the second I thought about that, I was just I was right. I was fucking pissed, and I you know it, it put me right back on track of saying fuck that. Damn, like I, I'm gonna do this. You know, does that still fire you up to this day? No, when you think I, about I haven't. It? Fuck, I haven't thought about it since the last time somebody asked me about it. I mean, it's it's for sure not something I think about anymore and haven't for a while. But but early on, as a young young man, kind of coming into manhood, it it uh, it absolutely was impactful that way. But yeah, how did uh, how did that how did that uh, create the motivation for you to um, go into the the SEAL teams? So I, I wouldn't say that 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 necessarily motivated me to do it. It it for sure played a role. Um, it was a combination of that uh, coupled with just being a competitive swimmer growing up, uh, being pretty pretty competent in the water. Uh, and just being drawn to to military service because of my grandfathers, both of them were in World War II, and and uh, I was always really fascinated by by their service and that generation and that war, and, and was kind of a, a history geek that way uh, growing up, and and I was just always always kind of motivated to want to do something like that, and and for me it was, you know, I read a Popular Mechanics article and and saw this story of of uh, who the Navy SEALs were in conjunction with watching the movie with Charlie Sheen in it. And I was just like, man, these guys sound fucking awesome. So, you know, all of that kind of combined was was really what, what drew me into, into doing it. And uh, I, I spent, you know, the last several years I was in high school being pretty laser focused on doing nothing but, but that. Damn. What, uh, so I know you uh, enlisted or signed up in the little delayed entry program at 17, and then uh, went into eight and uh, eighteen. What what year did you join? 
96. So I graduated high school. I was still 17 uh, when I graduated. So I, I did the delayed entry program right at graduation. I didn't turn 18 uh, until later that summer. And then I went to boot camp, you know, two weeks after I turned 18. But uh, Hardest thing for you, buds? Uh, San Clemente Island. No shit. Unquestionably. Yeah. Why is that? It was El, it was El Nino. It was a summer hell week. I, went, I actually went through hell week. Uh, it was my it was my nineteenth birthday. Um, I want to say two days after we finished hell week, and uh, but the, so that was in July, right? It's fucking warm, um, and they're going out to San Clemente Island in February, January, February. It was, it was an El Nino winter to boot, so uh, it was kind of extreme weather conditions. It's cold as fuck, and uh, I just you know it's kind of like. All the things that I'd read and whatever uh, was that, you know, that's where you actually learn stuff and, you know, you get to fucking blow shit up and shoot guns and, you know, patrol and, and kind of start to learn real frogman shit. And uh, Jesus Christ, we went out there and it was like the staff just hated us. Like the, the third phase cadre just fucking murdered us oh, over shit. and over. Yeah. Part of it, too, was that I got rolled. I, I started with 214 and I got rolled uh, six days before they went to San Clemente Island. Oh, damn. And so I, then I got rolled back, spent, you know, seven weeks in fucking rollback land and then joined up with 215 day one of third phase. And so, you know, that certainly didn't help, uh, you know, yeah. enjoying it. But, yeah, I just, you know, they, they fucking hated us. And, uh, I mean, we got about two and a half hours of sleep every night there and just got the fuck beat out of us nonstop, damn. you know. So uh, I didn't make it easy on myself either. I... Uh, there was one night where we patrolled. Uh, we, we did a a patrol gig where it was you know cold and rainy and you know cactus and fu- it was just miserable. And we got back at like two in the morning. And uh, admittedly, it was a total shitbag move on my part. Like we get back, we're in the armory cleaning guns and, and taking care of our shit. And me and two other guys ran to the fucking galley quick to get like hot chocolate because we were just fucking freezing. Right. And so while we're in there. Uh, I don't even remember what fucking instructor it was walked in there while we were fucking getting hot cocoa while everybody else is cleaning their shit, you know? And so, of course, he's like, you've got to be fucking shitting me. You know, he's like, out on the fucking beach now, you know? And so we run out there, and, dude, I'll tell you, it was probably the worst beating of of my entire time at at Bud's is that they took our our M4s and broke them down in the to, to the lowest fucking form possible. I mean, completely broke them down and put them in five-gallon sodazorb buckets that were half full of sand and salt water. Oh, shit. And, and buried them in there and, and made us fucking, and beat us while they were doing that. We had to disassemble them, and it was like buddy carries down to the beach, fucking surf torture, back, push-ups, monkey fuckers, jumping jacks, buddy carries, you know, just, it was like three hours of just getting the fuck hammered out of us. All while, because of you? Well, because of me and the two other guys, I mean, it was yeah. three of us. Fuck. And, uh, and so they, they took all three of our guns, right, and put it in one bucket, right? So, I mean, down to the fucking sear, the firing pin, you name it, all, all, all the way fucking down. Three weapons in, in a bucket full of sand and salt water. And after several hours of getting the shit beat out of us, hand us the bucket and, and we're like, we'll see you at fucking zero six for, for a weapons inspection. Shit. And uh, so, we, you know, we stayed up the whole rest of the night and, you know, we're sitting there, hands all fucked up and frozen, you know, digging through, you know, pouring shit out on the, on the grinder with flashlights trying to find our shit because they, they made us sift through it there before we could take it back. 
And uh, it was fucking miserable. But the the whole island was that way for us. I mean, it was just, it was like a nonstop kick in the, in the dick the whole time we were there. Uh, and it was cold. I mean, the water was like 48 to 52 degrees the whole time we were there. And it was just, it was shitty. But, yeah. What was the rest of the class doing when you guys were getting your ass beat? They uh, finished cleaning their weapons and went to bed. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, we, like, we're, as we're getting the fuck beat out of us, we see them, you know, trickling out of the fucking armory after all their shit's done hitting the rack you know and uh, i mean we deserved it like it was again it was a good lesson learned like even though like we were just gonna run and grab hot cocoa bring it back and try to warm up while we were doing our shit it was like just got caught at the wrong place the wrong fucking time and it happened to be i think it was a warrant officer was one of the more senior guys walked in and was just like hell no you know he kicked the door open and just fucking trashed us but damn so moving on past buds, uh, you checked in to what team? So I checked. I went to uh, went to Fort Benning for jump school first. Uh, we went there right after we graduated, before we even went on leave. So went straight from graduation, Fort Benning jump school. Uh, then we had thirty days leave, and then I checked into SEAL Team Three. You stayed at Team Three the entire yeah. time until you became an instructor. Yep. What was going on at that time period? So this was, you know, before 9-11. I mean, this was, uh, I graduated uh, from BUDS in February of 98. And so, uh, you know, it was still, you know, Bill Clinton was still fucking president. Mm. Um, you know, funding was not great. Uh, morale was okay. And, uh, you know, it was kind of the old school 80s and 90s teams yeah. back then still, you know, in terms of the, the way the teams were were structured you know seal team three was the the centcom or or desert warfare platoon you know team five was jungle or i'm sorry team one was jungle team five was korea and cold weather um you know and so we all kind of had our niches if you will uh you know we were the only ones that were our our working uniform was desert camis you know of the whole community we were the only ones wearing desert camis back then um and so everything was kind of structured toward desert everything i mean whether it was reconnaissance stuff or uh you know you name it is that everything was kind of geared towards long range desert type of operations and uh went through sqt and uh you know did the whole back then it was six months of uh of getting your all of your qualifications done once you know once you graduated you had that probationary period and so it took a while to get your tried and you had to take a chief's board and they fucking grill you for for hours and ask you every question under the book. And uh, just, it was a, a pretty painstaking process from the time you graduate buds until you actually got your trident. It was almost a year. So um, I kind of prefer it that way. I think it, it did a better job at kind of policing the, the new guys coming in and making sure that uh, that they kind of earn their trident the right way. That's my take on it. Of course, I'm a little biased, but, um, but yeah. So I uh, checked in there and, and uh, jumped into a platoon and, uh, it was an ARG Alpha platoon, which is Amphibious Readiness Group, um, which means we were on a ship. We had a, an almost two-year workup uh, and then a six-month deployment, and we spent a lot of that time on on ships. So I, I actually spent a, a pretty significant amount of time on a lot of different Navy Navy ships, which at the time kind of sucked, but I'm yeah. glad I did because it was good experience, you know, getting to— you know, most team guys now have never been on a fucking boat. If you came in, you know, in the last 15 years, you know, you, you probably have never even been on a fucking ship. I'm um, one of them. Yeah. <laughs> the only time I've ever been on one was doing VBSS training, yeah. which for those of you that don't know, that's uh, 
boarding ships and uh, taking them down. Yeah. And um, but so that's a rarity nowadays. Yeah. But uh, rewinding just a little bit, um, you had mentioned that uh, you really liked hearing the stories of uh, your grandparents serving in World War II. If you could serve in any war and uh, to include, um, you know, the ones you did serve in, would you have changed it? Is there any particular uh, war that you would want to serve in? I mean, part of me says uh, World War II just because of the, the gravity of, of the impact that it had on the entire planet. Yeah. To me, that, that war... Uh, not that Afghanistan wasn't justified, uh, but it just seems more more justified. Yeah, you know, uh, like the entire fucking country was behind it, and there there is a part of me I think that is almost jealous of of that time in our nation's history where I mean, literally, it, it was like nine twelve. Yeah, you know, but for five fucking years straight, you know, um, and, and so to me, like that kind of jumps out as being. Maybe it's over-romanticized because, you know, the way that the press was back then was very different and, and very filtered, and, and the American public did not have access to a lot of the same things that it has access to now as it relates to what goes on in war and, and things of that nature. But I still just think that, you know, there was there was a pretty clear-cut line in the sand of good versus evil, or at least it sure fucking seems that way, more so than it does now even, you know, to yeah. me. Um, not that fucking terrorists aren't aren't evil. It's just the those lines seem a little muddier now. Uh, and again, maybe it's because we're we're living in it. And yeah. World War Two, we're we're looking back and weren't a part of it. But uh, it just seems like such a such a powerful moment in in mankind's history. Yeah. That uh, I think that would have been one would have been pretty neat to be a part of. Yeah, as fucked up as it sounds, it's it's uh for United States modern day history. That was definitely our high point, and yeah. uh, it seems like it's been kind of uh, slowly, you know, watered down. Yep, yeah. ever since um, that point in time. But uh, moving past that, a lot of times guys have like an area of operation or or something that they that where they want to serve. Uh, did you guys have dream sheet when you were coming yeah. out or? Yeah, we did. I uh, actually picked SEAL Team 2 was my number one choice. Uh, SEAL Team 8 was my second choice, and Team 3 was my third. So I, I did get one of my choices. But, um, I, I, you know, I think a lot of us, I, I know for, for my class, or at least that kind of era, it seemed like the instructors played a huge role in inspiring guys where to go, what they wanted to do. Like, we all wanted to really emulate the cadre, especially our third phase guys. But... Most of the the SEAL cadre, uh, when I was a student, were East Coast guys for whatever fucking reason. Hmm. Um, and so, you know, most of us picked East Coast teams because, you know, they, they talked fondly and talked shit about, you know, West Coast Hollywood fuckers and, and whatever. And so, uh, yeah, I mean, we all kind of picked that. But there was an element of even back then, this was, you know, prior to 9-11, there was something about... Team three and then just the whole Middle East fucking component that that uh, was intriguing to me and so that's why I put it on the list also. But all fucking worked out. I mean, out of yeah. all the teams, uh, you know, minus Dev Group, but to my knowledge, it seems like Team Three probably throughout the uh, at least the earlier years in the war uh, um, got the most experience. Uh, sure. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we were just you know again like with most things, right place, the right time, and. <clears throat> You know, to be the team that kicked the Iraq War off, 
uh, you know, in the operation that we did with the go plats and the manifold metering station, I mean, the entire, all of SEAL Team 3 did did an operation together. You know, it's never been done before or since. Yeah. You know, so to have, you know, all, all fucking, every platoon at SEAL Team 3 <clears throat> on one singular huge fucking mission at once was pretty fucking cool, but... We'll get into that in a minute, but um, why why team two? That, w- that was UCOM, correct? Yeah, it's just uh, you know again like UCOM is Europe yeah. uh, for those of you that don't know. A bunch of uh, a bunch of the first phase instructors were team two guys, um, and a couple of our third phase instructors that uh, that just you know really uh, had a huge impact on me were were team two guys also, and so I think you know as a fucking nineteen year old it just. I was very impressionable. I was like, well, fuck, these guys seem like badasses and have cool stories. I want to go where they went. You know, yeah. it's really that simple. But <clears throat> Interesting. I was at eight and then went to two. Oh, yeah? Yeah. Yeah. But, um, all right, so you're at team three. And um, what was the check-in process like for you? Were they welcoming or did they fucking hate your guts? It was actually, uh, it was kind of underwhelming. Uh, I, I was expecting it to be more prevalent than it was i think you know they were all busy and it was kind of three sheets to the wind so it was it was a lot of like this is the fucking seal team like where is everybody you know like everybody was fucking gone like training and i actually had uh when i was home on leave i got a call from master chief huey uh who uh al huey's son who camp al huey which is uh you know the camp that uh, the the san Clemente island compound is named after was it's his son was a master chief at team three crusty old fucking guy he he actually called me on leave he was like you are you fucking coming and i was like what you know i was like i have 30 days leave i don't give a fuck get over here <laughs> i was just like okay so if i can i was like i guess i gotta go and i go and check in and, and even then like he wasn't there like finally you're here he'd like he just called the whole list of guys that you know that, that were gone it was like fucking get your ass here you know and like yeah. sqt was was starting up and so they were just like we, you know, there there was very little of it. Uh, I mean, they fucked with us a little bit of like, you know, the the um, the training cell guys would pull us in the office and be like, sit down, you know, and you'd sit down and be like, no, not there, get out, you know, just fucking with you like that, and like fill out your your school's request sheet, and and you better have underwater knife fighting. And fucking basket weaving on there, you know, and, and we're just like, okay, and it's like not even a real form, you know, like they're like just stupid, you know, new guy on the job type shit that, that they would fuck with us. But uh, there was a little bit of that, but otherwise it was really like, I was just like, Jesus Christ, like what, what are you guys doing? You know, and, and so there, there wasn't, you know, a bunch of cool stories about all, all sorts of crazy shit like a lot of guys have. It was, it was very, like I said, underwhelming. And, and I, I was only there for a matter of, of a couple of days and then started SQT, which at that time, uh, it was STT, uh, SEAL Tactical Training, and it was uh, basically all, similarly, it was it was right as they were starting all of, of the new BUDS uh, graduates were going through STT together, whether you're going to an East Coast team or whatever, because right before that, you actually did STT at your own team. Like each team ran their own little STT where their training cell guys you know on top of training the platoons would train the new guys and put them through a a little pipeline with just a handful of them as you can imagine that's not not really efficient uh, or effective Uh, but there were some some pros to it i think but so we were one of the first uh full full class you know all buds graduates irrespective of team that you're going to uh, to go through stt together 
uh, on the West Coast. And then once we finished that, then we went back to the team. And then it was more more structured. But, you know, then I'd been through through STT and was assigned to a platoon. And, and so I kind of jumped jumped right in there fairly quick and, and we got started. But uh, I don't know what it was like for you as a new guy. For me, you know, in the late 90s as a new guy in a SEAL team, non non wartime uh was fucking brutal yeah um you know and having a, an almost two-year workup i mean we got the fuck hazed out of us all the time you no know, shit oh yeah we got i mean fucking taped up and the shit beat out of us and mini blast machine getting electrocuted i mean fucking you name it yeah like we got we got fucking hammered all the time because they were bored you know and we yeah. had a long time together so how many new guys were in there with it half the fucking platoon there was eight of us no eight eight yeah. new guys yeah yep uh, Damn, Glenn Glenn Doherty was one of them. Uh, you know, so you know, there's a, a million fucking stories with him. Uh, God rest his soul. It's actually his fiftieth birthday today. But, yeah. but uh, yeah, so eight of us, and uh, it was the one I guess benefit to that is with, there was so many of us. It was harder for them to to haze all of us. They'd have to get us, you know, one or two at a time. Because uh, yeah. if all all eight of us were together, they they'd have a hard time <laughs> a hard time with us that way. But but, uh, it, you know, I will say this. I mean, again, it's kind of like the the speech that my dad gave me about going back to high school. Is at the time, it was kind of miserable and sucked. But looking back on it, I don't think you could pay um, to put yourself in a better circumstance as a young man, you know, to be surrounded by barrel-chested fucking pipe hitters that teach you how to be a fucking man, you know, yeah. and how to handle things and how to live your life and, and how to get things done and how to adapt and how to, you know, not make fucking excuses and how to hold you accountable and, and really, you know, teach you how to, how to fucking kick ass. You know, I mean, you just, to me, I wish every fucking young man that as a 19 and 20 year old, you know, had the ability to be surrounded by 180 fucking guys like that the way I did. I mean, I'll, I will be forever grateful that, that I was able to, to finish growing up in the SEAL teams. You know, my parents laid a great foundation and did a, a stand up job the SEAL teams absolutely fucking finished finished their job, and and uh, you know I, I would would not not be where I'm I'm at today, and nowhere near it had it not been for those guys. I mean they they really fucking showed me how to how to do it. Yeah, I'm right there with you. Um, I mean, that's definitely a fucking lost art these days. And uh, if it teaches you anything, accountability, and if you've and fucking consequences, which uh, are few and far between uh these days it's hard to find people to take accountability and uh the consequences are fucking so minimal now that uh i think it's ruined entire generations i agree and it's it's also motivated slash inspired me to to try to be that for whoever i can uh you know male or female there's you know in the canine world there's a lot of you know female potential canine handlers or people that have questions or whatever and you know writing the books uh, you know, has had a, a tremendous, tremendously rewarding impact on me also that way and in, in getting letters from people that are like, hey, I read your book and I just, you know, I, I joined the Air Force and I'm, you know, I'm slated to be a handler and, you know, it's because I read your book and, you know, whatever. Like to me, to, to be able to do anything even remotely close to what, you know, the generations before us did did for us in the in the SEAL teams, you know, if, if I can accomplish a fraction of that, I'll, I'll be glad that I at least was able to do something. Yeah. Uh, because if, if people don't take the time, if they're selfish with their time and just focus on them and, and not try to, to put that back into the following subsequent generations, then, uh, then we as a nation are completely fucked. So, 
Yeah, I would definitely um, agree with that. Um, so kind of moving past check-in and uh, your beginning time there. What what year was that? What year did you finally check in? 98. 98. <clears throat> what was your first real op? First real op was uh, was the USS Cole. No shit. Yeah. So yep. you went for, what, two years before you did anything real? Yes. I mean, so, you know, when I checked in, like I said, we had a two, I mean, it was like a 22-month workup, right? So... You know, we were training for almost two years before we deployed. And then when we deployed, we deployed on the uh, USS Duluth, <clears throat> uh, part of an, an amphib deployment. So there's a big group of amphibious ships, you know, all leaving from San Diego, steam all the way to the Middle East and sit there for six months and come back. And uh, we flew actually on a fucking C-130 from, uh, from San Diego to Hawaii, hung out in Hawaii for a few days, met the ship there, did some training and flew from Hawaii to uh, Kwajalein, Guam, and then ultimately Hawaii or uh, Australia, and spent about a month in fucking Australia, which was awesome for all the reasons you can probably imagine. <laughs> and uh, what does a bunch of board team guys do in Australia? <laughs> Everything you can think of. Uh, we did. We actually did a bunch of dumb shit. Uh, we had a couple of days up. We were training with uh, the North Force guys, the Northern Northern Force guys up, and we were in Darwin, which is the outback. I mean, it's. Not like the rest of Australia. It's much more, you know, the Mick Dundee fucking, uh, you know, out, out back type of uh, type of experience. But it was still neat. Uh, but we had a couple of days off, and we we actually told our our uh, officer in charge that we were just going to go camp at at Litchfield National Park, which was like an hour away, right there in the outback. And we jumped on. Uh, Qantas Airlines and flew all the way to the fucking Gold, Gold Coast without telling oh, him. Shit. Uh, without telling him and and flew there. There was four of us, I think, and uh, dove on the fucking Great Barrier Reef uh, and pub crawled like for three days. Just we were staying in hostels and scuba diving and getting shit faced and just just totally fucking going nuts. You know, yeah. he, and he thought we were camping an hour away and we were like a fucking five hour flight. But but uh, anyway, so we came back, had a good time, and then. Uh, Ended up going from there. We took a, a guided missile cruiser, jumped on that, and hauled ass all the way to Bahrain. We were in Bahrain for a little bit, uh, and then we were scheduled to go do some other shit, and then that's when the coal got hit. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. A total of six sets of remains uh, have been found on board the coal during the course of today. Um, we are working to identify uh, the remains and to contact the next of kin uh, of those individuals. And that notification and identification process uh, continues as we speak. My prayers are with the families of those killed and injured and with all the brave men and women in uniform who serve our country every day around the world. So we jumped on the USS Tarla uh, and steamed down to, um, to the coal. And then we sat on the coal for two fucking months. And Rewind real quick. How uh, how much note? How many days passed between when the coal got hit and you guys arriving on the coal? It was like a day and a half, two days. I mean, it was quick. How fucking fired up were you guys yeah, to do that? Fired up. I mean, it was it was nerve wracking and, and fired up at the same time. Uh, you know, jumping on a ship that's doing twelve miles an hour, kind of it's almost like the Austin Powers, you know, like, <laughs> where he's like getting ready to run the guy over and he sits there screaming for fucking two minutes, like. 
uh, you know, there was an element of like, Jesus Christ, we need to get there, you know, and uh, it, it was a few days. Um, you know, it wasn't as quick as, you know, jumping on a plane and being there that day. But, uh, but you know, they weren't hanging out like dog's balls for too, too long. But, um, yeah, it was, it was nerve-wracking because, again, this, it's, it's hard to even put people in that frame of mind of this was still before September 11th, you know. Yeah. So um, knowing that, you know, I mean, even the name Osama bin Laden, like, it was like, who? Yeah. Even then, it was like Al-Qaeda, what the fuck is that? You know, like, I, I had a little bit more inclination on who they were and what they were about because I was the intel rep for the platoon and we were going to the Middle East, so I, I was a little more read in than, than most people. But uh, but it still it wasn't obviously anywhere near like it is now and and so it was a, a bigger deal in that respect and that you yeah. know this is a U.S. warship that suicide bombers fucking pulled a, a tug laden with explosives alongside and blew themselves up. Um, interestingly, <clears throat> they tasked a guy to uh, to videotape that whole fucking thing and uh, and he fell asleep. And didn't get it on film, you know, their propaganda wing of Al Qaeda. I mean, I think they, I don't know if they executed him, but uh, you know, it came out years later that uh, that they had actually tasked a guy to, to get that on film. I, I kind of wish they had, you know, maybe yeah. maybe that's a sadistic, creepy thing to to think, but um, you know, for for their uses, you know, the propaganda tools are, are pretty powerful. But uh, I mean, that killed like uh, 15, 19. 19 sailors, and yeah. then. Uh, a lot of casualties. Yeah, and it was it was fucking creepy uh, for us because coming on board, you know, obviously the the crew was to say that they were rattled is a fucking huge understatement. Yeah, you know, uh, because the the goal of of the entire mission was to actually sink that fucking ship. You know, yeah. it wasn't just to to bomb it. And the the whole reason that we were there was because they threatened to to sink it. You know, they came came over the open airwave Marband radio. Uh, and threatened the captain, and they were like, you know, this is fucking Al Qaeda. Your ship is not leaving our fucking harbor. You know, we like we will sink it or, or whatever the fuck they said, something to that effect. And so that's why we went down there. And so we sat there for two months, and from sundown to sun up, every fucking night, we had two uh, ribs, two boats, you know, floating around with a couple guys on it. And then we had a sixty gunner and a couple snipers and a law rocket. Uh, guy on the bridge of the ship, uh, kind of keeping you know overwatch, and and we were out uh, on the boats, and there was there was a number of times where small boats would come you know test test the perimeter and see what they could get away with and whatever, and we were always right there. We never mixed it up with them, but a couple of pretty you know fairly close calls where um, you know if if things had gone maybe a little different, it probably would have would have gone pretty bad for for the boats that were trying to come come any closer, but. Any uh, shots fired? Nothing. nothing. At, at least nothing uh, from any of the boats I was on, and I, I don't recall any any of the other guys having any. There was a couple of close calls where, again, it was like you know they went a little too close, and guys would get would haul ass out there and you know maybe draw down on them, or the fucking um, you know fifty cal guys on the rib would fucking yeah. be like, hey motherfucker, you know, or, or whatever. But so they they never really tried anything past that because I, I think they knew you know that it wasn't going to fucking pan out well for them, but. Where it was fucking creepy was um, going inside, you know, the first couple of days we were there, we actually, you know, we stayed on board the coal. And, you know, they had 19 empty racks. Well, guess where we fucking slept, you know? So we're sleeping in these sailors' bunks that were just fucking blown Fuck. up. 
you know, and, and like, you know, there's USS Cole fucking coffee mugs with fucking like powder blasts on them in the Damn. galley and, and uh, you know, people's personal effects. And, you know, a lot of the crew, like, you know, you're laying in some dude that, you know, the, the, the rest of the room is, is fucking devastated and you're like laying in his bunk jerking off <laughs> no i'm kidding but uh but they're looking at you you know they're just they're looking at you like what the fuck you know like yeah. they just can't can't wrap their mind around it you know and it was we didn't know any of them so it was just very different for us coming on board but but uh you know it was, it was a powerful fucking moment for us because um it was the first you know kind of like holy shit you know this, yeah. this is a shit real just got real a real fucking deal and they're testing the water and and so uh there was also uh, the the stench from uh, you know being in ninety four degree fucking water salt water you know and having now a ship that has no running power on it uh, in terms of AC and stuff you know I had floodlights and, and stuff in some of the barracks rooms on enough generator power but nowhere near enough because of the damage to the ship to, to actually keep it cool and so uh, I mean it's just the, the smell of of nineteen semi-submerged blown up dead bodies trapped in a fucking boat you know in that kind of water and that kind of heat day in day out for a couple of months was fucking brutal uh and there they was, were they, the bodies were in there still yeah they couldn't get them out uh, Jesus there, there was Christ. one instance where from about the knee down uh in in the galley so the the witness reports were when the uh when the the blast hit it hit during lunch and it was right at midships, which is where the galley was located in that uh, that area. And so everybody that was in there said that it was like a fuck. The floor was like a, a fucking sine wave. Like the floor went like yeah. that, you know, a metal floor moving like a fucking wave from the blast. And uh, so there there was a section of the of the ship where the floor became the ceiling, and it just fucking meshed up, and, and that was it. And there was one spot where. As you're walking, you could actually see a fucking dungaree and a boondocker from about the knee down hanging out of the out of the fucking where now it's a ceiling. It was a floor, and now it's a ceiling. Somebody's fucking leg just hanging there, uh, you know, right there, fucking plain as day. And and then the other uh, 18 people were, you know, in, in different parts of the boat, fucking mangled and and uh, dead, just sitting there, fucking rotting. But fuck, man. Yeah. So you guys, um, damn. How long? Uh, how long were you guys on there? Two months. Two. So, that boat sat in that uh, harbor and and ate in for two fucking months. Two fucking months, yeah. So you can imagine, like the smell didn't get any fucking better. And the, and the bodies were there the entire the time. time. Yeah. What? Um, how'd you guys get the boat out? So the the USS Marlin Spike, which was a floating dye rock, came from Louisiana and came all the way out, and it took you know between spinning them up and outfitting it to, to accommodate the coal and all of that. It took two fucking months to get there, 63 days. And uh, they came about 12 miles off the coast. And then they took uh, tugs and bumper boats and shit and, and drug the coal out to it. And, uh, and then so the way the, the floating dry dock works is it's this monster fucking boat, right? And it has the ability to, to sink itself they drag the boat on and then it raises back up. And so, I mean, you can Google pictures of Marlin Spike and Cole and you'll see this fucking ship that has a, a USS warship that looks like it's a fucking toy on it. It's, it's that much bigger, you know, so it, 
it, it fucking dry docks the uh, the coal on a boat and then it steamed all the way back to Louisiana. Damn. Took them a couple of years to uh, completely re refurbish the ship, but they did. They completely repaired it, and, and, and to my knowledge, it's actually back out, uh, back out at sea and doing deployments again. But uh, one thing. While it was being drug out there, because it took you know a couple of days, you know, because it was the one thing it was it was severely listed. I mean, I don't know how the fuck it didn't sink. Honestly, I mean, I think it speaks volumes to the crew for doing such a good job, uh, damage control wise, of having all their ducks in a row and, and handling their processes the way they were supposed to, because they kept the the boat from sinking. It's a monster fucking hole in it, and uh, <clears throat> so it took them forever to dra- to drag it out. Well, while it was being drug out. We actually got spun up to do a shipboarding. You know, we we had thought like finally, you know, sixty three days of night after night, fucking guarding this goddamn thing. You know, it's it's dragging out, and, and now we can kind of relax. Well, on its way out, there was a fucking boat hauling ass straight towards it. You know that that our ship picked up on the radar, so they spun us up. We get all our shit on, hop in the ribs, go fucking assault this uh, this little miniature fucking tug tanker thing that uh, was, it turned out it was just bringing oil um, out out to the Marlin Spike. I guess there was, you know, they didn't deconflict or whatever, but there was a, a Yemeni uh, army officer with a, with a fucking Beretta on board, and then the rest was just a crew. And, and of course, we assaulted it like, like it was Al-Qaeda coming back yeah. to fucking, you know, we almost shot and killed the fucking Yemeni guy because he, uh, he kind of had an attitude and started to put his hand on his fucking pistol. And uh, Clint Emerson and I uh, actually were the two guys that um, zeroed in on him and fucking just swarmed him and backed him up. And he was like, oh, shit, you know, he had MP5s down his fucking throat. And uh, and he got his hand off his gun immediately and decided he, did. he didn't want to fuck around. But uh, so, you know, once we finally got that done, um, then we, we actually did a follow-on op with uh, because of that. So at the time... Uh, you know, U.S. ships were pulling in everywhere, and that's that's what was happening with the coal in Yemen is they were just pulling in for a resupply. Um, and so once that happened, uh, the U.S. Navy said no more resupplies anywhere other than Dubai, no. or actually Jebel Ali, which is just south of Dubai. And so we went to Dubai. We jumped on a on a USNS fucking merchant marine ship and hauled ass to uh, to Dubai and. We were in plain clothes, relaxed grooming standards, fucking cover stories, the whole bit. Uh, and every fucking Navy ship that came in, we would uh, dive on the tugboats and ensure that uh, that they didn't have any bombs on them or explosives or whatever. Went through the whole warehouse personnel pallets. We had a sniper overwatch on one of the towers. I mean, we had a whole fucking thing going on of, uh, of every time a ship pulled in, we made sure that that shit wasn't going to happen. So we spent about a month in Dubai doing that. Do you remember what your cover was? It, it was fucking lame. It was just like we were government contractors oh, doing okay. like electrical work or something stupid like that. It wasn't anything fancy. Of course, if we were out in town, we were a fucking American rugby team or whatever. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, did you, you know, Yemen is, uh, Yemen is a uh, very fucked up place. And uh, I deployed there uh, several times. <clears throat> and, uh, you know, probably doesn't mean shit to you, but I got to see where the, you know, coal happened. I used to drive by it every fucking day. Oh shit! And yeah, and um, and uh, me and Glover had a couple incidents there, and uh, I, there was always shit going on in uh, in Yemen, especially in Aden. Did you guys get to go out in town at all, or? Nope we uh, we were on the ship or in that port area, and that was it. 
Okay. So we had very limited uh, exposure experience to, to any of the actual local populace. I mean, a little bit from, you know, people coming and checking it out or, you know, interacting with people on, on board or whatever. I do remember uh, it just kind of flashed in my memory. You know, at that time I was, uh, I think I just turned 21 um, right before we deployed on that. And uh, so, you know, as a 21 year old, like I'm still pretty young, you know, by parents standards and whatever. And so anyway, on a sat phone, I scared the shit out of my parents, uh, you know, cause they heard about it in the news and they, and they knew I was overseas and they hadn't heard from me in a while. And all of a sudden I call them and my dad like had, had gone home, like he'd forgot something and, and went back, you know, after lunch and went back into the house and, uh, you know, cause even this was before really people, everybody had cell phones. Uh, and so I call him on a sat phone at, at the house phone and he picked up and he hadn't heard from me in weeks. I was like, guess where I'm staying? And he's like, where? I was like, on, on board the fucking USS Cole half sunk oh, in the water. He's like, what? <laughs> he's like, Jesus fucking Christ. Like, you know, he's having a heart attack. Like, what you, the fuck are you doing there? Are you okay? You know, all this other shit. And, uh, but yeah, it's just, it was one of those moments where, uh, you know, almost like fate, like he, I, I wouldn't have gotten a hold of him otherwise, but, uh, you know, I had the, had the opportunity to call him and uh, it was just kind of neat. We, we look back on that and laugh once in a while, but. Yeah. You know, it, um, just backtracking a little bit more too, uh, even though there was no shots fired, um, just for the audience, I think that always kind of surprises me because there hasn't been shit going on, you know, and uh, you, you spent two years at the fucking team preparing to go to war. And, uh, and uh, like when I showed up, we knew what we were going to do. And there was nothing going, and then this happens, which you know gives you the adrenaline, and uh, and and I'm assuming the entire platoon was hungry as fuck to get some action. And I guess where I'm going is the discipline that it takes to not shoot a potential threat when you know you can fucking get away with is uh, it's it's uh, there's something to be said about that, you know, and uh, a lot of units don't have that fucking discipline and and uh that's one of the things that separates uh special operations units from conventional units so uh i just want to kind of uh reiterate that or bring awareness on how much fucking discipline that actually takes i mean well yeah i appreciate it i think and i agree i think half of it uh is what you're talking about in terms of you know, having clear thinking, you know, not overly aggressive people, you know, knowing when to use aggression, how to apply it, and also when to turn it the fuck off when it's appropriate, when it's not, uh, you know, and being clear-headed to know the difference is, is uh, necessary. But I also think there's an element of leadership that uh, exists, at least within our chain of command at that time it did, where we knew absolutely what the fucking right and left flank were yeah. was you know there was a here is here is our fucking bubble and nobody comes inside that i don't care if they're five inches from it you don't fucking engage them you know and so they they were smart enough to to see and test you know our, our perimeter and see you know if we go here what happens if we go like and, and so we would ratchet it up where you know if they were getting close we'd we'd start heading that way you know and they'd get to a certain point and they'd fucking full throttle it out to the edge and then so that you know they honestly like a fucking dog that is testing a goddamn electric fence you know that, that's yeah. basically what they were doing and so you know they they were measuring our response 
uh, as it relates to, to their behavior and, and figured out how far they could get and, and what we were going to do. And, that, yeah, there were a couple of times where, uh, you know, we made it abundantly clear, like, any fucking further and, and you're your fucking history. Yeah. And I think they just recognized that and decided, you know what, we'll live to fight another day and, and this isn't worth it. Yeah. I mean, even just the revenge factor, you know, I mean, fuck, yeah. you're eating chow with fucking yeah. decaying legs hanging through the ceiling and, yeah. uh, you know, which are Americans and, uh, and uh, our brothers and sisters, you know, that are servants. So uh, fucking kudos to you, man, and your team. And Clint. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I, I thought, you know, it's funny. I, I talked a little bit about this with uh, Nick and Remy talking about race and, and policing and not to get too off on a tangent, but the I think the, the one of the starkest contrasts between the U.S. military and U.S. police forces is, is that, is that, you know, it's there's elements of police and granted, not all of them. There's plenty of them that, that aren't that way. But there I, I think that there are there are too many holdovers of when things happen, you know, there's times where cops get away with shit that they probably shouldn't, you know, and there's almost never a time where that happens in the military. Yeah. You know, like you fuck up this, it's like the Top Gun quote, you fuck up this much, you're going to fly in a rubber, a cargo plane full of rubber dog shit out of Hong Kong, right? Is it, you know, you fuck up that much and you're going to be breaking big rocks into little rocks at Leavenworth and everybody fucking knows that. Yeah. You know, and so to me, like, that's the, that's really the secret sauce it's not even in selection or training or whatever that's going to take years of, of revamping and, and billions of fucking dollars in funding it's like have, have an accountability system so stringent that that people know absolutely like you you fucking this is okay this isn't okay have the leadership you know with enough directive and balls and, and ability to communicate what you know the the black and white contrasted right and left flank are so that guys understand what the fuck they're allowed to do and, and what they're not allowed to do you know and i think yeah. the military just does a way better job at that yeah well um let's take a quick commercial break and uh when we come back we'll move on this episode of the sean ryan show is brought to you by vigilance elite patreon vigilance elite patreon is how you support the show it also has an entire library of tactical training and behind-the-scenes footage of The Sean Ryan Show. Go to VigilanceElite.com, click the Training tab. It'll take you right to Vigilance Elite Training on Patreon. Get a subscription. Support the show. Thank you. Let's get on with it. All right, Mike, so we're back from the break. We were just in Yemen, uh, USS Cole, and uh, you said you were there with Clint Emerson. So I just happened to have uh, Clint on the line here. So <laughs> oh, That's fucking great. Hey, Clint, how's it going, man? Hey, how you guys doing? Doing right. pretty good. Uh, so I got your buddy Mike Ritland here, and he was just talking about uh, boarding a uh, small boat and uh, shoving some MP5s in somebody's face. So I wonder if I could get you guys to kind of uh, relive that. Yeah, I'm all for it. Oh, I, I, there's only one part of that I remember, and that's grabbing his nuts when it was all over with. <laughs> it wasn't that fun. Were they, were they, uh, did he have bigger nuts than uh, Mike does? <laughs> Mike Big Balls Ritland? <laughs> Uh, you know, I don't remember, you know, size, consistency, um, whether they were full, full firm or uh, soft. 
actually do remember that. Yeah, uh, we were we were just getting like we were on the the loading bay or whatever. Uh, you know, like where where you climb back up on the ship, and I was like, "What the fuck are you doing?" <laughs> So that's no shit. He's not even joking. Yeah. He did grab my fucking nuts. I don't like in some of those serious situations with humor. You know, I tend yeah. to uh, kind of laugh when I get nervous, and so uh, <laughs> I think it only gets worse over time. At least for me, with uh, just stupid antics to kind of lighten up sometimes the most serious moments. Yeah. Oh, you grab Mike's nuts. Yeah, I grabbed his nuts and yeah. said, "Wasn't that fun?" <laughs> oh shit! I thought you grabbed the uh, Yemeni's nuts, the Yemeni guys' nuts. <laughs> no, after the Yemeni's guy. Decided he didn't want to uh, play, then I was like, oh, well, I'll just play with Mike instead. <laughs> uh, never a dull moment with yeah, no, it was, I, I mean, I don't know how d- deep you guys have gotten into it, but for me, you know, um, I've told people time and time again, if there's one thing that'll take your, your level of uh, patriotism up a couple of notches is rolling up on a... Uh, on a really advanced destroyer like that, listing in a uh, in a Yemeni's harbor, you know, it was like holy shit, you know, this is uh, this is actually real. And there's that little overwhelming feeling, like, wait a minute, these guys are this capable. Um, you know, it was a, it was just a, a surreal uh, experience uh, when we when we first arrived there. So, and then everything after that was. Uh, without a doubt, kind of first time for a lot of stuff. And, you know, we were all just figuring it out as we uh, as we moved along. Well, yeah, I was telling him, uh, especially because it was pre-9-11, you know, so just the the mentality of, of the SEAL teams and the country and, and the world at that point was was very different. And so it was, it was even more impactful that way. Uh, you know, not that it wouldn't be if it happened today again, but it just because it was so out of the blue and, and you know, Al-Qaeda was – was not a household name at that point the way that it is now and and it uh yeah it the the crew was pretty rattled and, and we were all kind of sobered up real fucking quick coming from bahrain hanging out fucking off you know on the tail end of a of a month in australia doing the same shit it was kind of a, a slap in the face of like hey this is pretty fucking serious how bad did yeah. you guys want to go back to australia once you uh were, <laughs> were on that ship for about a month <laughs> Yeah, when we uh, we were ran, we're running out of food, and Mike Mike's memory is far better than mine. He's had to remind me of some of this, and then I go, "Oh yeah," but like you know, food wise, I mean, we got down to these uh, rations that you know basically said, you know, what was it said, Mike? It was stamped on there like for animal use only or well, something. It, like it that. said and for we were uh, eating it every day. It said for veterinary and military use only. <laughs> <laughs> So yeah, yeah that's feed, what it was. Feed it to fucking animals, I guess. But nice. Yeah. Well, uh, we're gonna wrap this up here real quick. But you got anything to say to Clint? Oh, just uh, you know, keep it keep it clean over there, and uh, I'll be I'll be home soon. Okay, I miss you, honey. You take care. <laughs> be careful coming home. Right on, man. Well, hey, Clint, thanks for the uh, call, man, and uh, we got to get you on here. Oh yeah, I'm standing by. Been waiting. All right, you guys take it easy, and uh, yeah, wear your mask, wear your gloves, put your butt plugs in place. All right, talk <laughs> to you later. Plug is in place. Be safe, man. All right, bye bye. That's no, classic. <laughs> well, fuck, man. If I would have known uh, you guys were uh, together, then 
That would have been planned a little better, but... Yeah, I was going to bring him with, but uh, you know, I didn't want to announce it on the show. I guess the cat's out of the bag now. Huh? That's cool, man. <laughs> That's cool that uh, you guys got that history. Yeah. But uh, so anyways, <clears throat> let's just keep moving forward. Um, so we're out of Yemen, and uh, I kind of want to get to uh, the invasion or the oil rigs, um, whichever one's first. I've heard you talk about both of them in, in, uh, in uh, one of your books, and... I heard you talk about the oil rigs uh, in one of your books and um, and the invasion on several different podcasts. But sure. uh, I'd like to go in depth with whichever one of those came first. Yeah. So the the deployment that the coal was on uh, was prior to the Iraq invasion deployment, and and it was uh, you know we did the did the coal we were in Dubai for that you know month or so, and then uh, scattered around a little bit after that, and then made our way back home. Got back in February. Platoon didn't start up until that following January. We got home in February of 2001, though. So, I, you know, I went and, and did a couple different schools, went to Tagalog. We were slated to go to Southeast Asia, which we did. Uh, but then 9-11 happened. And I actually did a six-week uh, exercise in, in Jordan right after 9-11, uh, which was treated much more differently than just an exercise uh, because of what happened. They, they almost kind of treated it like a uh, kind of a forward staging area in, in case they wanted to, you know, send some guys straight straight from there. So we, we took that exercise quite a bit more serious also. Uh, ended up not doing anything other than just working with uh, Jordanian Special Forces uh, and SEALs there and then ultimately platooned up. Uh, did about a year workup and then deployed. Uh, we still originally went to Southeast Asia. We based out of Guam, went to the Philippines, went to Singapore, went to Thailand, uh, and then kind of got the hey, we're uh, we're going to be moving you over to Kuwait. Uh, Iraq is probably going to happen, you know, because we deployed in uh, October, uh, September, October of 2003, uh, two rather. And uh, so early 2003, they said, you know, hey, we're sending you to fucking Kuwait and you guys are going to stage out of the Kuwaiti naval base uh, in case Iraq kicks off, which we expect it to, you know. And so at that point, you know, we didn't have any of our desert anything like we had to have all, sh you know, shits shipped over and we're painting guns and robbing Peter to pay Paul trying to get desert stuff together and uh, went over to, to uh, Kuwait and we staged out of there for about six weeks. And, uh, you know, hearing the, the stories of the staging for the bin Laden raid is actually kind of similar in that we had, you know, a solid almost two months and we had the, the whole oil platform staked out uh, in the fucking sand, uh, you know, because it was 1600 meters long, which uh, I don't think people realize how big of a fucking target it was. It's 16 football fields, um, you know, that, that this whole target consisted of that we had to take down. And so... We practiced, you know, the actions on the objective uh, for that over and over and over for six fucking weeks before we hit it. You know, no so, shit. Yeah, so we were, you know, to say we were, you know, from a CQB and, and room clearing standpoint, our platoon was as well-oiled as, as any fucking SEAL platoon could have been. You know, you guys had every fucking detail, contingency, it all, all of it was mapped out. For the most part, the where it was a little shaky was the the intelligence coming in for for that mission was. And I was the intel rep. It was not not very easy to corroborate what what was accurate or what we thought was accurate or not because it was very conflicting. Some reports said, you know, there's a handful of people on board, and uh, you know, there's basically there, there's no intelligence that indicates that there's going to be any resistance. 
on one end of the spectrum. On the other end of the spectrum, there's over 100 people on board. It's rigged with explosives. They're going to clack it off the second you guys fucking step on. Uh, and every fucking thing in between, you know. So there was there was a lot of conflicting intelligence. And, do, you, uh, do you have any idea how many different sources they were running for that? Or uh, it was mostly four, which I, I can't name which which four, but there were there were four that we were working with predominantly. And, and even within those four, um, it was changing. You know, one day it would be this, and then it's like now there's more people, now there's less people. There's They've got, you know, anti-aircraft uh, artillery pieces on board. They have fucking, you know, there's we see that there's there's pipes rigged with explosives. My uh, <clears throat> my AOIC, the assistant officer in charge or second in command, and I jumped on a helicopter and flew above it, uh, hanging out the fucking window, taking pictures with our most powerful digital cameras at the time, which, you know, again, this is 2003. Yeah. A lot of technology has, has transpired since then, so it wasn't great. And it was super fucking overcast, so we didn't get great intel. But uh, it was kind of a neat, uh, you know, a neat uh, op that way and that it was, you know, a little bit of a an offshoot from some shit that we would normally do. But so we took a bunch of pictures of that came back and really ultimately determined that there there are at least a few dozen people on board uh, and we've had multiple reports that that there are explosives on board uh, and that there's a good chance that you know certain pipes are rigged to blow if we try to take it down you know so that's that was kind of you know the the final picture that was painted uh, for us as as we were getting ready to take this thing down now at the same time, there was a manifold and metering station uh, on the coast, which was about 25 miles away from from where the the GoPlat was, and all of the rest of SEAL Team Three was tasked with taking that down at the same time. There was wow. a, a problem with um, you know this 26 miles of pipeline. Uh, they're 48 inch pipes, and there's four of them, and they're filled with oil. So. If they were to to blow, you know, either end or the pipes, uh, and and that amount of oil spilling, it would have been like thirty Exxon Valdez spills worth of oil in the in the in the Gulf, and we would have been, you know, the bad guy because it was our fault and blah blah blah. So it was imperative that the entire team was, you know, working in cahoots with one another to be able to take all of it down at the same time. Yeah, which, as you can imagine, is a uh, is a hell of a logistic undertaking. Yeah, um, but so we managed to, uh, you know, we get ready to do it. We took uh, Mark Fives out for for a ways, uh, and the ribs followed us. Uh, so we were hanging out in the Mark Fives, just kind of relaxing. And then once we got <clears throat> about uh, I don't know three or four miles out, maybe we jumped in the ribs and and got all of our shit on and and uh, got ready to go. I mean, we were basically stacked on the ribs, you know, fucking rock and rock, ready to go and uh, haul ass up there. And we, we had practiced diving, we had practiced fast roping. Ultimately, we ended up uh, just taking a boat and fucking hauling ass up, jumping off the boat and, and just taking it down in kind of a swarm type of fashion. Climbing up? Yeah. Uh, I mean, basically just jumping off the boat onto the lowest platform. Okay. You know, and, and then taking it down bottom to top. Now, at one end, there was a birthing section and the rest of that 1,600 meters, there were little stations every, you know, couple hundred yards, uh, you know, where there was, you know, a little office or, you know, kind of a, a building that, uh, you know, was an observer, uh, observation uh, deck or something like that for the, the ships pulling up or whatever. But the the majority of the concentration of people and, and things that we were worried about were at the birthing at one end. So uh, we jump on board. Um, Real quick, let me interrupt you. 
So <clears throat> how many different uh, elements are there between the pipeline and the, and the platforms? Um, I mean, it, it was really all one big fucking thing. So, okay. um, you know, it was like, uh, I mean, it was almost kind of, it kind of looked like a long tanker in and of itself, but it could accommodate up to four oil tankers, two on each side at the same time and okay. load them with oil. And the reason why there was significance, uh, strategic significance is that that, it was that, uh, oh, uh, what was it? Uh, Maybot and Kayot. It was the the Mina Al Bakr oil uh, oil terminal was the was the name of of the facility. How the fuck I remember that I don't know. But uh, so four tankers would come up there, and that's where Saddam was, uh, you know, fighting or or uh, going against the embargo and, and smuggling oil. Even though you know there were sanctions against his country to to be able to sell oil, that's where they were doing it from. Was from that that terminal. The the Kayot, the Kor Alamaya. Uh, oil terminal was completely empty, and the and the Grom guys took that down <clears throat> at the same time that we were doing it. But they we we knew that there was nobody on there, and that's the the target. They just wanted to make sure it was secure, so nobody could come on and fuck with it. Um, so we uh, we jump on board, and uh, there ends up being I want to say uh, twenty six. Um, you know, in whatever you want to call them, uh, enemy fighters on board that were a mixed bag of um, Iraqi intelligence, Special Republican Guard, Navy, um, you know, and, and kind of a, a handful of other people that just had different roles in, in Saddam's military. There was a couple of Navy divers uh, and there were a significant amount of explosives on board. And, and they, they uh, through interrogations afterward, Actually revealed to uh, to the interrogators that um, that they were they were instructed to um, you know put put the explosives all over the pipes and put them in certain places and, and blow it when we came on board. Um, but so they uh, were expecting you guys. Yeah. Because do you think it's because of the helo op for pulling surveillance? No, that uh, them off? I think it was two reasons. Is that you know the helo op? We were at like. I mean, we were stupid high. We were, you know, almost O2 levels or, or close. I mean, oh. we were thousands of feet above, and I don't think that that tipped them off. We we took it down in the first first Gulf War, and from a, a strategic standpoint, um, you know, it, it was kind of a no-brainer that they knew it would because that was the only uh, operational oil terminal that, that Iraq had at the time in the Gulf that they could load tankers with oil. So it was kind of, they just, they knew we would we would come secure it. Uh, it was Saddam's goal, again, learning well after the fact that, uh, like we anticipated, that uh, it was his goal to to blow that and, and frame us or pin it on us for, you know, having a, a huge ecological disaster, uh, you know, because we fucked with it. Uh, just like, the, you know, they did with the Kuwaiti oil rigs in, uh, in the first Gulf War of setting them on fire. They, they wanted to accomplish that same thing. So uh, it was it was a pretty uh, high-value strategic target for sure. And uh, But we managed to get on board without uh, most of them knowing anyway is that, uh, you know, most of them were asleep. Uh, and so, you know, we, we didn't really have any resistance in terms of them firing or putting up a huge fight. There were some of them that were hiding or that were, you know, locked in different rooms and we went through and, and breached all the fucking doors, uh, shotguns with no ear pro. And you were the breacher. I was one of them, yeah. Shane and I were, were the two shotgun breachers. So we breached a fuck ton of doors, caught guys in rooms, um, you know, and, and a lot of them had guns and, and whatever. We just, 
we were very fortunate and, and uh, you know, we were able to capture, you know, 20, 27, 26 prisoners and, uh, and, you know, not have any, any casualties on our end whatsoever. So. Holy shit. 27 fucking prisoners. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> did you say you rolled up in a rib? We did. Yeah. Two okay. Of, two of them. So rib is kind of like those of you that don't know, it's uh looks kind of like a, uh, Zodiac, which is a rubber boat, but it has a metal bottom, and yeah. uh, a lot of times they have a canopy over the. It's a center console. Yeah. But um, and then uh, I'm just curious. It's kind of a weird question, but uh, wh- what were you guys wearing? Were you wetsuits or? Were you- oh, uh, it was all flight suits and MP5s. I mean, oh it was, shit! Uh, it was That's like old school, old school recruiting video. <laughs> yeah. Holy shit! Yeah. MP5s. Were you guys running optics? Uh, just um. What was it? Uh, it was the Trigicon. The um, reflex. Reflex sights on pretty much everybody's rig, yeah. Damn. Yep. And, and, you know, and again, that you know, that that uh, platform there was, was appropriate because it was, you know, mostly metal uh, everything. I mean, fucking everything was made out of metal, close quarters, um, you know. So, it, yeah, MP5s, I, uh, you know, even looking back on it, I, I would use those again. I mean, what we were wearing, I think, was was the right call for it uh we did have body armor and helmets on but yeah a classic visit board search and seizure uh you know type of kit and and set up <clears throat> nighttime say that again was it at nighttime yeah it was it was uh it was probably around midnight one o'clock somewhere in there uh, and it took us about four and a half hours to secure the whole fucking thing uh, obviously most of that time was down at the birthing area dealing with all the people. I mean, we hogtied them and put fucking sandbags over their heads and corralled them all into one area. I mean, some guys were crying. Some of them literally shit themselves and pissed themselves. Um, you know, some of them were, were, you know, in a man pile to begin with, all fucking all, all over each other and like, what the fuck? But, uh, yeah, it was, a, it was a filthy fucking birthing area, as you can imagine, you know, out out that far with no, no real re- resupply other than kind of the bare necessities. So... Um, but you know, ultimately they, you know, we were able to get on there before they, they could do anything. They didn't blow anything up and, uh, and we managed to, to capture all of them. So how many, uh, how many operators were there? There was, uh, I think 31 or two of us. We had a, uh, we had an SDV platoon with us, uh, also. So it was two, two SEAL platoons. Did they roll in in the uh, with the sub, or were they on the uh, ribs? So they they did a an op um, on or with an SDV that uh, you know prior to that uh, from an intelligence gathering standpoint to try to you know uh, fill in some of the gaps also um, and and really weren't able to provide much much more intel than than we already had you know they weren't able to confirm. You know any of the the suspicions of you know pipes laden with explosives or anything because ultimately there wasn't you know they, they had the explosives on board but uh, but they weren't they weren't rigged uh, the way that they would have need to have been to, to actually blow everything up when we stepped on so they got fucking lazy huh well I, you know th- there was one guy that made a comment in uh, post interrogations that said uh, you know they told us to to do that but we all kind of looked around and realized like, well, what the fuck are we supposed to do then? You know, we're 25 miles off the coast with no <laughs> boats and you want us to blow this up? Like, well, that's going to fuck us up too. So I think that's probably most of why they didn't do it is, is they didn't want to turn into fucking suicide bombers, you know, because wow. they'd have blown themselves up. But I've never heard that before. Everybody's always uh, seems to be uh, 
pretty willing to volunteer for that. Yeah, I, you know, again, I think, uh, you know, when you're talking regular Iraqi military, even the special Republican Guard guys, um, it's more mafia style than it is, you know, hardline Islamic terrorist, you know. So um, in dealing with, with the actual Iraqi military, most of those guys have no interest in in dying, you know, so um, or, or are scared of it at least enough to not do something like that. But yeah. Were the uh, prisoners pretty compliant or? Yeah, they were scared shitless. Um, yeah. You know, they they didn't uh, didn't really fight at all. I mean, some of them, a, a little bit of scuffle here and there, but uh, it, it you didn't get the impression that they wanted a fight, that's for sure. Uh, were you guys on uh, running nods no. then? You were white light? I mean, there, there was enough light there already that uh, we just didn't need them. Uh, oh, we did okay. have white lights and there were parts of the birthing where, where we used it, like some bathrooms that were dark or, uh, you know, some sections of it that were, you know, lower lit that we, that we white lighted a little bit. But I mean, then, uh, not even all of us had fucking nods, uh, you know, in, in, in terms of, you know, a two, two, uh, or a binocular setting. Like I had a fucking, I think it's, what is it? A PBS 14, uh, the, the monocular fucking, yeah. yeah. You know, I, I had to do some driving with, with a fucking monocular for, for a while, you know? So we were, we were, I think under outfitted a fair bit, but damn, it's fucking crazy how far, uh, yeah. Everything's come, you know, yeah. it's relatively yeah, I mean, short amount of time. Yeah. I mean, there were, you know, once we went in country, we were in, uh, in four Humvees, none of them were armored. Uh, two of them didn't even have fucking doors on them, you know? So the two that did, they were those just thin skin, like vinyl doors that we hung body armor on the fucking doors to give us something, something extra. Like we'd throw our body armor on the fucking, you know, out the window and over the door to give you some kind of fucking protection on the doors. But damn dude. Yeah. Um, so is that where that op ended or? Yeah, so we we finished that, and then there was a kind of a turnover team. Uh, there was you know interrogators, and uh, I think a Marine Fast uh, group came on to basically you know hold it for however long until they brought you know I don't know contractors to operate it or, or what. But yeah, we just we took it over, and, and when we finished, it was right at when the sun was coming up, and so uh, our replacements showed up on a helo and we jumped on uh, on back on the ribs and then ultimately we loaded the ribs onto a fucking fast cat like a, a big fast catamaran and rode that back to uh <clears throat> back to KNB Kuwaiti Naval Base. So we get back there, do the whole debrief thing and then at that point I mean that's basically what started the war, right? Mm -hmm. That happened the night before the invasion. So we went from Kuwaiti Naval Base up to uh, Ali Asalim Air Force Base in the northern part of Kuwait and uh, loaded all of our shit up. We had to steal a Humvee from the Air Force because we only had three of them, and it was green. So, like, overnight we had cans of paint and, and a couple of paintbrushes, and our new guys fucking hand-painted a green Humvee tan. And uh, we loaded all of our shit up in it and then drove across the border up and drove all the way to Nazaria. Uh, Shit. in in one one fell swoop um well before we uh before we go there i want to go back uh so that op that we just discussed uh correct me if i'm wrong but was that your first interaction with uh taking something down with dogs no, um, we didn't have dogs on that at all you didn't have dogs okay no, no the 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 first time there was even 
mention of them was uh, towards the end of that deployment up in the northern part of the country in Tikrit. There was a, a Marine contingent that had an explosive detection dog by where we were at. <clears throat> okay. So, um, yeah, so we uh, so we end up going up to Ali Aslim and, and end up, uh, there was the 15th Marine Expeditionary Unit um, was taking some pretty fucking heavy casualties in Nazaria along a, a main supply route. A lot of the uh, Saddam Fedayeen guys were heavily concentrated in Nazaria, and uh, they were given given them all all they could fucking deal with. And so Mattis, who was the uh, CEO of uh, the First Marine Division at the time, asked Commodore Harwood if he would uh, let some of our guys come up and ambush the ambushers that were fucking with his supply route. So. We went up into Nazaria and spent a couple of weeks there disrupting every fucking thing we could. Uh, and we spent uh, kind of a blue gold, we spent that time doing kind of a blue gold thing with another platoon from Team 3. And so we would go out one night and, and do operations and they would be our QRF. And then the next night we'd flip flop. Uh, we did a couple of couple of ops where we went out uh, together and, you know, we would drive or they would drive, you know, and, and kind of all go out as a group. We hit a train station as a group. And that was one of the times where I had to drive on nods, uh, totally dark for like three and a half hours on the insert. And we pull up and hit the train station. We establish a perimeter and whatever. And uh, it was on, that was the first mission where we found, actually found like uh, CBR, the, you know, chemical biological radiological suits and two pam chloride pens and bags of white powder and all kinds of like chemical weapon uh training suits and, and a bunch of shit in there uh that we turned over and and never heard anything more about it what but was the pucker factor well, the uh pucker factor huge. like yeah i'll bet yeah i mean when you're coming across that shit you're just like holy oh, fuck, fuck. It, you know like are we stepping into a fucking you know cache of goddamn you know chemical weapons or what the fuck is this you know so um but so we spent two weeks there just, again, trying to disrupt operations, spent a lot of time, um, you know, blowing up fucking like we'd, we'd find caches of, uh, of weapons, of, of uh, you know, crates of RPGs, you know, shit like that. Uh, we had some UA, we had a UAV guy at the time that uh, that program was just kind of starting to come online. And so it was a team guy, UAV operator that went with us and we'd launch it from the Humvee and. It was awesome because, like, we would drive along and, and it would be up above. And, you know, at a certain level on the ground, unless you kind of really know what you're looking at, you can't tell if that's a real fucking plane or a UAV if it's high enough, right? And so yeah. you could draw out, you know, the fucking insurgents because they'd start shooting at it, <clears throat> you know. And so we, we would use that as much as a fucking decoy <laughs> as, as we would, uh, you know, actually getting the real-time intelligence of, of what's ahead is that you draw out people and start shooting at it and stuff. So, um, you know, we would, uh, you know, spent, like I said, spent a couple of weeks just doing tit-for-tat, trying to disrupt the network of people that were fucking with the, with the convoy routes for the Marines. And uh, it seems like we did a, at least an adequate enough job to, to keep them from getting fucked with anymore. So, what was the resistance like? Were they uh, pretty dedicated or? No, it was real mixed. Um, most of it was, you know, again, this was at the start of the war. So I think just my kind of assumption was that they didn't really understand. It was kind of like the guys in Yemen is that it was more like testing what they could get away with or not. Okay. So it was much more cat and mouse kind of shit, you know, um, 
and and because of that, I think you know they they based a lot of what they did after that as you know teams came in and established fobs and whatever is that you know that kind of set the tone I think for what they knew they could start to get away with or not how much of a fight they could put up with before they had to uh, you know retreat or or bound back or or bag ass and live to fight another day you know so. Um, a lot of it was, you know, and for us too, some of it was us feeling them out, you know, is, you know, if we shoot through these windows and we take fucking shots from, from here, you know, how we, how we respond, what does that dictate, you know, in terms of their response and, you know, whether or not we use the UAV, if we, you know, blow up caches, do they come to see what the fucking explosion was? If, you know, if we blow up, you know, like we blew up vehicles, um, you know, or shot water tanks, like we'd come across little areas that, uh, that we knew, you know, people had just been there, like there was fresh food and, and little like almost campsites at d- different checkpoints and places, you know, or, or you know, you'd, you'd take shots from somewhere and you'd go check it out and, and they would leave and you'd, you'd find, you know, crates of fucking ammo and AKs and and uh, RPG rounds and fuel tanks and, and vehicles and shit. And so we would swoop in there and just place fucking standard charges on everything and just blow the fuck out of all of it, you know? And then sometimes we would, we would probe in further. Sometimes we would go back and see if they would come back. It was just, it was a lot of that kind of, you know, back and forth cat and mouse bullshit of figuring out, you know, what the fuck they're going to do based on what we do and vice versa. Yeah. But you got, so you guys were fucking engaging. Uh, in, in some cases. Yeah. You know, it, it was pretty light though. You know, it was, it was very, um, what I, I guess I would call it, it was more, um, reconnaissance driven, you know, on, okay. on both ends, you know, both in fire and effect and, and everything else. But, um, it wasn't until we went up to the Northern part of the country where it was a legitimate fucking like, holy fuck gunfight, um, you know, where there was bullets flying every which goddamn direction, um, you know, into the Humvees and, right past your fucking head and in the ground next to you. And I mean, it was, it was like kicking over a fucking hornet's nest when we, when we went up there, but between Nazaria and the Northern part, we did hang out. Uh, we were in Baghdad. We took down a scud base. Uh, That's which, fucking awesome. Which was pretty neat, especially growing up, you know, in the first Gulf war and seeing, you know, how big of an impact scuds had on, uh, everything. And, you know, so this was the, the Iraqi army's main scud training facility base. Uh, and there, you know, I took pictures of, of, uh, they had murals, these crazy, like anti-American murals that had all sorts of twisted shit. Like they'd have like a blonde hair, blue eyed, muscular guy on his knees with his hands behind his back and like a, a muscled out Iraqi looking guy with his shirt off with an Iraqi flag wrapped around the American's neck, like choking his eyes until they're bulging out and falling out of his head. And No shit. You got pictures of this? I do. I'm going to put them up yeah, on screen. Like a, a skull painted like, like an American flag with a fist painted like an Iraqi flag, like coming down and, and crushing the fucking skull apart. Just weird shit like that, you know. And uh, the, like, But, you know, again, thinking of it like if you were to go to you know, NAB Coronado and like, that's what it was like yeah. they had these crazy anti-American murals, like all over the base, you know, it just was weird. But, you know, people don't fucking realize how anti-American it was over there and how much they wanted to fuck us up. And, yeah. and in Afghanistan too, I remember seeing the rugs with, uh, did you ever get those? They had the little prayer rugs with the twin towers. Oh no, I never got those, but yeah, they had rugs with twin towers on them and it had the plane, uh, the planes crashing into the fucking twin towers. I used to pray on them. God and, damn. Uh, yeah. yeah. But anyways, 
Yeah, it's, it's it's weird to see that. I mean, when you're in you know a foreign country and you're on military bases, you know, basically fighting fighting their military and taking their their facilities down, seeing that shit. It, it again, it's kind of like the the same sentiment as being in the cold. Is that it makes you realize exactly that. It's like these people fucking hate us. Like it's ingrained in their culture. It's you know uh, pervasive in their military. Like it, it's just uh, it's ever present. You know so. Uh, similarly there is that, you know, as soon as we would roll up, a lot of times they would just bag ass and, you know, they'd take pot shots and it'd be a little bit of back and forth, but they, they ultimately didn't want to fight a whole lot. Um, that was in the Northern part of Baghdad. So we spent, you know, some time in Baghdad doing a, a few different things, um, like that. And then went up to the Northern part of the country and, and for reference, um, the, the entire Iraq campaign originally was supposed to be, I want to say it was the. I think it was the 3rd Armored Division um, and the 1st Armored Division were supposed to come together. Uh, basically, the 3rd AD was supposed to come down out of Turkey and take Mosul and Tikrit and, and uh, even the, the Sunni Triangle and then ultimately um, set up shop on the northern part of Baghdad. The 1st Armored Division was supposed to come out of Kuwait and do the same thing, go through Nazaria and... and uh, you know, end up at the southern part of Baghdad. And then that was going to be like the meeting point where they kind of crush Baghdad together from the north and the south at the same time. And so you had um, a shitload of, of army troops that were on ships going through the fucking straits that were going to go through Turkey. And Turkey at the last second decided you can't use our fucking country to assault Iraq from like right before we were supposed to launch it. So, you know, in, in true Murphy's Law fashion, it was, all right, well, I guess, you know, change of plan. We're going to go south to all the way to fucking the Turkey border. And so it was the 1st AD and the 1st Marine Division. <clears throat> you know, about half of the, the amount of troops as we had planned on using and just swept from the southern uh, border all the way to the northern border. So it was literally, it was like a front line just moving you know, similar to you hear shit about World War II and you watch, you know, documentaries on this front was here and, and whatever. It was very much old school, conventional military planning that way and, and front lines and whatever. And so we uh, were with the, the 1st Marine Division, specifically with the 15th Marine Expeditionary Unit most of the time. And we would go ahead of their convoys and scout out bridges and routes and make sure areas were uh, were cool for them to, to come through or whatever. And um, so that, that's most of what we did, uh, you know, from, from when we left Nazaria moving up north as we accompanied them and just kind of did that. Were you still in shit Humvees pulling yeah. reconnaissance for them? Yeah. You weren't in low pro vehicles or anything like that? Nope. Shit Humvees with fucking no armor. Jesus Christ, dude. That's fucking ballsy. Yeah. <laughs> Damn. Yeah. No. And, and, you know, and also mind you, we were going ahead of, of where the armor was. You know, yeah. so you've got these front lines of, you know, tanks and LAVs and LARs and all this, you know, heavy fucking shit. <clears throat> and we're in these thin skinned fucking Humvees with nothing but small arms and a couple of Gustav rounds fucking driving 20, 30 miles north of, of where the fucking most northern American troops are at scouting out their fucking routes like a bunch of dumbasses. Damn. Um, you know, and we just... Uh, yeah, we just fucking pulled it off. <laughs> you Fuck, know, but, man. Uh, I mean, did you guys get uh, hit or no, no IEDs? I no, mean, I guess so, it's brand new. So yeah, they but then there, there really weren't any IEDs, th any IED threats. There were, you know, pot shots here and there, you know, similarly, like people trying to figure out, 
I mean, it, it was almost like hiding in plain sight is that it was so unexpected that it was kind of like catching them with their pants down because they were just like, are those our guys or who? Like, yeah, they would never expect four Humvees by themselves, <laughs> you know, to be 20 miles fucking north of where American forces are at. So I think a lot of times they're just kind of looking around, not knowing what the fuck, who the fuck we were, uh, which is dumb, <laughs> you know, fuck. on our part. But uh, but anyway, so that's what we did. How um, far ahead are you? Uh, how far how far ahead of the uh, the Marines were you? It depended, you know, it depended on, on the route, the terrain, how, you know, what direction they were going. You know, we did it multiple times and we would usually do it at night. I mean, we always did it at night. Five uh, minutes out, 24 hours out? No, I mean, it was, it was usually a few hours, you know. So if you got into a tick and you took some heavies, you're looking at two hours fucking time before anybody's coming to get your ass. On the ground, yes. The one, the one saving grace that uh, for sure made us all feel better about it was we had a uh, an Air Force fucking um, CCT guy with us, as well as our comm guy was fucking shit hot. <clears throat> and we did have a dedicated fucking AC-130 above us that uh, if we needed, and we did, uh, we called him in once, and those motherfuckers were on station. I'm not shitting you in like 45 seconds. Like, no shit. You know, just they were fucking right there, you know. So it was awesome. I'll, I'll get to that in a minute. But... Uh, so yeah, we we had had them on the line, you know, basically accompanying us when we were doing it most of the time, or at least to my knowledge. <clears throat> um, who knows? Maybe our ROIC and AOIC just said that to make us feel better. Fuck, I, I don't know. <laughs> but but like I said, we did have to call on them once, and they were right there. So I'm assuming it's legit. But um, as as the uh, you know Baghdad falls, and so now it's like okay, well. Uh, you know, this is the kind of the, that was the big push that we were worried about. Um, now it was, we've got Tikrit and Mosul. Tikrit is Saddam's hometown. So uh, we end up with the, the entire 1st Marine Division, right? It's like 25,000 fucking troops. And, it, and it's a couple miles of tanks and LAVs and LARs and, you know, fucking Humvees and you name it. Uh, as far as you can see all the way forward and all the way behind you, I mean, miles of, of convoy and SEAL Team 3 Echo Platoon, right? 16 fucking team guys and 25,000 fucking Marines. So we're uh, convoying up to Tikrit and the we're, we're planning on taking it down the next day. So it's getting to be nightfall. We pull up and we're, we're on the southern edge of the city. <clears throat> And it's basically we're on this main highway that runs into town. And then there was like a, you know, a commuter ring kind of road that went around the city. And we stopped at that intersection. And when we pulled up, there was, uh, you know, a, a number of headshed Marines that were uh, sitting there kind of planning out the next day. <clears throat> and when we pulled up uh, to kind of dirt dive the next day's uh, operations with them. You know, the first thing we asked was like, hey, did you guys fucking secure this area? Like, have you probed out? And, oh, yeah, everything's fucking good. Okay. So we pull our Humvees up and, you know, like a bunch of assholes, take our boots off and fucking start eating chow and fucking white light headlamps on. And, you know, like we're on a fucking SNR mission at Fort Irwin in July, <laughs> you know, like just totally fucking no, no discipline, you know, really. Cause again, we're like, dude, we're with 25,000 Marines and they, you know, like they've been here for the last two hours. Like, I think we're good. Right. No. So <clears throat> we're literally like maps on the hoods, fucking talking over what we're going to do. And, and they're saying, you know, tomorrow we're going to have, uh, you know, this fucking group, take this part, this group, take that part. 
uh, you know, SEAL Team 3 Echo, you guys are going to come in from the east with with this group and you're going to, you know, circle up and take this route and hit the fucking palace and take it down. As we're planning this, all of a sudden, all fucking hell breaks loose. Like, gunfire just erupts and it's every fucking where. I mean, you know, there's explosions and looking back on it now... Um, the road that we were on in that ring, there was a kind of a little nest of, of trees and then a tree line that, that followed that road heading east. <clears throat> and uh, there was a group of insurgents that were in that fucking tree nest, literally probably 20 yards from where the fucking convoy paralleled, just sitting there, fucking ski mask, trench coats, AKs, fucking a little, you know, cached nest of fucking stuff. Right behind that, they had a couple of vehicles with uh, a couple of technicals that had anti-aircraft fucking pieces on the back, and the and the beds of the trucks were filled with fucking shells. And so, um, what ended up happening is two Marines walked out into that field to take a shit, and fucking literally bumped into a group, fucking all on their knees in the dirt, fucking dirt diving how they were going to ambush us. Uh, so these guys, you know, are like, hey, well, you know, not, not the most brilliant fucking plan, but like they walk out and they startle them instead of just fucking shooting them right there while they're not paying attention. Like they confront them. These guys jump up and fucking zipper the fucking Marines up and that kicks off. Now Marines are fucking shooting at them. They're shooting at us. And, and we're caught between both the insurgents and the Marines oh, fucking shooting at fuck each other. shit. And so uh, there was a Marine AT4 round that hit one of the fucking technical trucks, and it blew up. And again, we had no idea that the guys were there or that the trucks were there at the time. We're sitting there just... I mean, I jumped into, into the front seat. I'm trying to throw my fucking shit on. And, I mean, there's rounds coming in the fucking dash, zipping past my fucking head, you know, hitting the fucking engine compartment, hitting the dirt right outside where my feet are at. I mean, hitting the fucking windshield, you name it, all over the fucking place. And, uh, and so, you know, we get all of our shit on, we get into like a lazy L ambush facing the contact to try to figure out what the fuck's going on. Cause we also know, Hey, there's fucking blue forces right there. Like yeah. what the fuck is going on? And so, um, when that AT4 round hit that technical with all the rounds in it, well, it sent, you know, dozens of fucking anti-aircraft rounds scattered, half detonated all over the fucking place. And they start blowing up sympathetically like and, and intermittently uh making us all think that you know there's this monster force ambushing us right because all we see is you know it's like artillery's fucking going off and so we get on our fucking night vision and we start to identify you know what's what and there's a fucking dude that's like um he's probably 25 30 yards away crouched down um, a ski mask on, trench coat, fucking AK, and he's just like sitting there crouched down, just kind of turning his head, looking like this, cool as a fucking cucumber. He doesn't have nods at, the, at that point. Uh, most of our guys did. And uh, and so we get him on, we get in this L-shaped ambush, we deconflict with the Marines. We all had suppressors on, so they, they actually didn't even realize we were taking mm-hmm. care of that guy and, and, the, and the nest behind him. But um, So most of our guys fucking engage this dude. What was interesting is uh, there was six or seven of us, I think, that all took shots at, at basically at the same time, fucking center mass and, and drilled him. And that motherfucker dropped his gun and ran for probably 50 or 60 yards before he fell down and fucking died. What, um, this happens a lot. What kind of rounds were you guys Green using? Green tip, fucking Green tip. Yeah. You know, uh, we had that same shit happen 
uh, to us, and it still blows my mind that after all the after-action reports that were coming out, that we didn't fucking change from green tip because it was just zipping right through. Yeah. And uh, a lot of times guys didn't even know they were being fucking shot. Yeah, it's I don't a good think. case for 300 blackout. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but especially a fucking 124 grain, not a, not a 205 grain. But um, but anyway, so so we end up neutralizing that guy. He goes, and there was, there was some interesting things. Uh, once, you know, every, everything fucking dies down, uh, the two Marines that got zippered up, one of them I think ended up dying. The other one got medevaced out and, and was actually saved by, he had like a fucking Tom, Tom Clancy novel shoved down his, in between his flak jacket and his fucking chest and one of the rounds fucking stopped halfway through the fucking book. Um, and had like his half of his ass shot off too. Like he took a, an AK round in his ass and blew, you know, most of his ass cheek off. But our, our corpsman fucking helped him out and got, uh, got them as, as patched up as they could and, and what have you. But, uh, upon further investigation, you know, once we uh, got the Marines to stop shooting the sympathetic detonations from the, uh, um, from the technical fucking artillery pieces stopped going off and we kind of get in a, in a leapfrog forward, moving through the the area where we were ambushed from in this nest. And similarly, like these guys were set up for, um, you know, several days worth of food and, you know, lots of ammo and, uh, you know, explosives and fucking um, uh, RPG rounds and all sorts of shit. But when we finally came across the one, the one guy that, uh, that we shot and, and took off running, he had uh, some really weird fucking personal effects. He had absolutely no, identification on him whatsoever like not a wallet not a driver's license nothing uh you know no no papers whatsoever but he had on like a fucking john wayne gun belt like a legitimate like something you would buy out of a fucking store like a a toy and it was a plastic fucking pistol in it you gotta be shitting you know he had a, a toy plastic pistol in a in a cheese dick fucking john wayne gun belt he sure as fuck had a real ak uh, and when we found the AK uh, and looked at his hands, uh, this was totally by fucking luck, but both of his hands had bullet wounds right through the meat of his hands, and both the pistol grip and the forward grip of the AK had had bullet holes and blood on the fucking gun where he dropped Fuck, it and man. took off running. Yeah, I mean, literally shot, yeah, I mean, again, totally by accident, but <laughs> shot the fucking gun out of his hand. And... Uh, and then he had uh, a, a number of rounds in his fucking chest cavity, uh, but was again he was about sixty yards away, uh, yeah. you know, when we actually found him. So, needless to say, after that, um, you know, trying to get some sleep and get ready for the next night wasn't the easiest thing. I mean, at that point, again, there's no fobs. Like the entire time we were there, we were either sleeping in little two man tents that we brought with us. Most of the time, we would just throw a ground pad underneath the fucking Humvee and sleep under it, you know, and, and that's how we slept 90% of the time. And so no different there. Same same plan moving forward. We're going to take down the palace the next day uh, and take down the entire town of Tikrit with, you know, 25,000 fucking Marines. And so we did. And uh, we got up at sunrise, fucking, you know, just a mass swath of fucking U.S. forces swept through the entire town of Tikrit and took the whole fucking thing down in a matter of about a half a day. Damn. And uh, there were there was resistance. There were pockets uh, here and there. It wasn't, you know, Saddam's last stand by any stretch. I think, again, is, is that, you know, they were they knew how outgunned they were, uh, you know, and they put up fights and tested certain areas here and there and got 
handily defeated uh, pretty quickly and decided, you know, we need to figure out a, a more guerrilla warfare insurgent style tactic if we're going to have any fucking, you know, potential success against these guys. And so, you know, there again, there were pockets of resistance, there were gunfights here and there, some rooftop shit here and there. Uh, so we go to the palace and, and same thing, like it, t- it took us a couple of hours to take that down. Um, and, uh, and, you know, it was just, I mean, that's about a fucking episode in and of itself in terms of just what the palace was like. I mean, it was just the, the opulence that existed in that fucking place was, was of biblical proportion. Like it was just crazy. The amount of fucking nice shit in, in there. I mean, from the, the hand, hand inlaid tile ceilings to fucking everything's made out of gold to, you know, marble floors, marble pillars, fucking, you know, you had gold soap dishes and gold toilet brushes. And I mean, it was just, it was fucking nuts. Before we go into that, uh, and I can't wait to get there. I'm just curious, like, um, so you guys had pretty fucking shitty living conditions, sleeping under fucking Humvees and... Yeah, no, I mean, no, no running water. But what I'm curious about is uh, the morale. I mean, you guys were working your ass off and... It was high. We were, we were fucking loving it, you know, because it was, it, it was like, the, it was finally the fucking big show, you know, because uh, we were at Team 3 when 9-11 happened. We didn't yeah. go to Afghanistan. And so, and then they were like, yeah, Afghanistan's going off, but you're going to the fucking Philippines. Like, are you fucking kidding me? Yeah. You know, so then Iraq kicks off and we finally, you know, we trained for almost two months to hit one fucking target where we take down fucking, you know, 26, 27 dudes with you know, very little resistance. And so, yeah, it's like now we're, we're finally fucking doing it, you know? It's, it's fucking crazy because you take the gunfight out and, uh, you know, I'm betting that morale would have been at an all time (laughs) fucking low. And, uh, you know, I've heard you say it a hundred million fucking times about, you know, a dog's not happy unless he's working and you direct, uh, you relate that directly to humans and you guys are doing exactly what the fuck you were, are trained to do and if i was a betting man and i am (laughs) i would bet that there is nowhere else in the world you would rather be than ducking down in a ditch taking gunfire and fucking returning it yeah uh, yeah it was it was the uh the finally you know feeling you know so um it it was it was a neat uh and it was it was really neat from a historical standpoint and that it was it was a very tangible um, existence in terms of the front lines and, you know, the, the historical, I think, relevance of, of what we were doing and, and where and when, you know, just it was it was the initial invasion of of the Iraq war. You know? It's fucking insane. I mean, you kicked the fucking goddamn war off. Yeah, that's yeah, it was pretty neat for pretty sure. Pretty fucking badass. Yeah, just, you know, again, it was the right place at the right time. And, uh, you know, so, yeah, we we enjoyed it. It was uh, it, was, it was a neat, neat time to be there for sure. But yeah. um, one thing I didn't mention is we actually had a, a platoon member quit uh, after after the go plat, though, to not to counter that thought process, but just to uh, to make people realize, like, you know, even even in those circles, there's there's people that decide, you know, what this isn't fucking for me. We had a guy that, uh, yeah, he even leading up to the go plat, it was his first platoon uh, and he was fucking scared and uh, and was basically like, hey, at what point is this just fucking too dangerous and we're not going to do it? And we were like, it's not, motherfucker. We, like, we have to fucking do this. You know, like, yeah, I, I know that the last report I gave you was that there's 115 people on board and 
and there's four 48-inch fucking oil pipes rib, rigged with explosives to blow up when we step on board. But guess what? We're still going on it. So, you know, grab a hold of your nuts, and and that's what's happening. And, and uh, he froze. Uh, like, when we got on there, I remember I... In fact, that the very first uh, room that I entered on there was a fucking dark-ass bathroom. And he was... Uh, we went through like this small little corridor and then he was supposed to be the number one guy and he froze right in the fucking doorway. And I grabbed him and fucking just threw him to the fucking side and, and me and the, the two guys behind me finished clearing that bathroom. I mean, he was like a deer in a headlights, just completely fucking frozen. You had a fucking Navy SEAL operator quit on quit. target in the middle of a fucking operation? Yep. And uh, so our, our OIC grabbed him and just said, get in the fucking back and, and hold rear security and stay with me. I mean, at that point, he was a fucking liability, a huge yeah. liability. He might as well be a fucking prisoner. Yeah. And so he stayed in the back fucking, you know, scared out of his fucking mind. And uh, and then when we got back, um, you know, like I said, we went right up to Ali Asaleem Air Force Base. We were getting in our vehicles, you know, getting ready to fucking go go into Iraq to drive across the fucking border into Iraq, loaded down to the gills to go ambush the ambushers, so to speak, in in Nazaria. And he and he stood there right there and said, "I can't do it." He's like, "I can't. I'm sorry, guys. I can't fucking do it." Holy shit! He's like, "I got a wife. I want to have kids. I just, I'm sorry. I, I can't fucking do this." And we were all like, "You motherfucker!" He was a sixty gunner for us too. And so, he, and so, no shit, and, and this guy is now a team guy. I think he's still on, on active duty, so I'm not going to mention his name. But As a fucking— as, as No, no, not this okay. guy. The, the guy that, that I'm mentioning now. Uh, so he, he left. He went home and fucking got out, uh, you know, separated and was fucking done. Um, I'll get to him in a minute. The guy—we had a, an intel rep, right? This guy's an IS-3, like 20, 21 years old. He's been through fucking boot camp and, and IS school and has been an intel guy for, you know, group one or whatever the fuck for a couple of months. And and he's at that same base. And I'm not shitting you. This dude's like, I'll fucking go. And we all kind of looked around and we were like, you know how to fucking shoot a saw? And he's like, nope. And we're like, well, here's the fucking belt and here's the trigger. You're fucking coming with <laughs> Holy us. Holy shit. And we drug a fucking IS-3 that hasn't been through BUDS, hasn't been through SQT, hasn't been on a fucking range with us, hand him a fucking a saw, and we go in country with him. And he fucking accompanied us the whole goddamn way. And he and I actually sat on the rooftop. I, I talk about this in, in the Trident book. Sat on the rooftop of Saddam's palace and almost got fucking mortared. <clears throat> That's a whole other story, but but this guy again, and he ended up going through buds after that. He came came home after that deployment because he stayed after we left because he was on a different rotation. Did his fucking pull there, went to buds, graduated, and has been a seal for the last fucking twenty years. I think I know this fucker. Yeah, we, uh, was he uh, of Russian descent? But I don't think so. Maybe okay. Yeah, I don't think so. I'll I'll tell you his name off camera. Maybe you know him, but uh, fucking great dude, you know. I mean, Sounds you talk like about it. balls of fucking steel. Like, <laughs> doesn't even know what he's doing. He's like, fuck it, I'll I'll sit in this fucking spot with the gun out the window, and yeah, he fucking went with us. That's awesome. Yeah, he went with us. Uh, you know, for for I mean, he went with us on the uh, to take the palace down too. You know, I mean, Damn. He, he sat in the fucking back right, uh, or no, sorry, the back left fucking window with a saw out the fucking window pulling fucking vehicle security while we were driving through the town to get up to the uh, to get up to the palace. Damn. Yeah. Kudos to that dude. Yeah. Fucking Fuck. great great fucking dude. But 
when we ended up getting back, uh, nobody would talk to the guy that quit. I mean, nobody would even fucking look at him. You know, he tried to, hey, guys, fucking welcome back. And he was still at the team for like, I don't know, 10 days a week, two weeks, maybe something like that while he was out processing or whatever. And, and nobody would even fucking look at him. You know, wouldn't talk to him, nothing. Yeah. I, I say I, I almost feel bad. I don't. I still don't. Fuck that guy. You yeah. Know? I mean, he fucking left us hanging. He can go fuck himself. Yeah. And I have no doubt that, uh, you know, he'll spend the rest of his life living in a world of regret for doing that. But he should. Yeah. You know, so. That's, uh, I've never seen that fucking happen. Not, well, I have seen that happen, but not in, uh, not in a unit like the fucking SEAL team. Yeah. Never, not once. Yeah. Wow. So uh, the palace. So the palace. Um, the palace again. It was. Uh, it was everything you would think. You know, in terms of just how how it was made and how fucking big it was, and and the the attention to detail that was put into constructing that fucking thing was mind boggling. Now, did you get any? Uh Souvenirs by yeah, chance? Yeah. There, there were no souvenirs to be had. Uh, yeah, zero. So, all right, uh, it's completely empty. Nothing to it. <laughs> nothing and, to uh, see here. Nothing to see here. And uh, there, so I mean, in all seriousness, it, it was mostly vacated. Uh, in that, you know, that was while it was his hometown. Uh, it was not a palace that he spent a lot of time in. So it wasn't like filled with Saddam's personal effects like like the Baghdad palaces were. There was stuff in it, uh, but not, you know, again, not like he was living there all yeah. the time like the ones that he did in Baghdad. But um, I know, uh, I mean, I don't, there was a lot of good shit in some of those palaces. Like, So I've heard. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, yeah, so the, uh, yeah, the palace was, it was again, it was, uh, in, in terms of actually taking it down, it took a couple of hours. It, it wasn't, you know, some heavily guarded fucking institution. At that point, it was that part of the town was a ghost town. Again, I think th there were there were indicators that, um, you know, that people had been there recently, just like a lot of the other places, but had just left. And, you know, thinking of it now and, and looking back on it is that, you know, to have a, a crew of, uh, you know, almost 30,000 U.S. soldiers, many of whom in armored vehicles, rolling up towards you know how I don't care how many of you are there are in a palace like they're either going to knock the palace down or you know whatever like you're you're not going to stand a chance and so I think the pockets of resistance that we did run into were you know we either caught them off guard or they were just seeing you know how how hard we would fight back or go after them or or whatever but there weren't these like epic fucking four hour gun battles you know they were they were shots here and there and it was no. Uh, you know, no real fucking dug in and, and, you know, pulling fucking grenade pins and dragging people out of, out of buildings. It, it just wasn't that, you know, yeah. for, for that. But uh, once we secured the palace, though, <clears throat> then we kind of set up shop there. And at that point, like, we were finally done moving through the country. You know, we, we had spent that entire time in country constantly, you know, bump, bumping forward and coming back and bumping forward and coming back, moving our way from from the, the southern edge of the country all the way to the north. So, I mean, in that respect, it was kind of neat to have fought our way the entire way of the, the entire fucking country uh, during that initial invasion period. But um, but once we got to the palace and took it down and set up shop there, then we were, we were static, and, and that's where we were the static uh, for the most and for the longest. 
And so we started doing like some sniper overwatch shit. We'd go out in town from there and, uh, you know, and, some, and set up similar operations of, of kind of what we were doing down in Nazaria uh, and in the southern part of Baghdad of just kind of going out and getting our own intel and figuring out what the fuck's going on. And if if anything was to be had or to be done, then then we did it. But um, there was a 24-7 uh, watch on the rooftop um, because it was the highest point in the city. And I remember the Air Force had bombed the shit out of the uh, the airfield in Tikrit, which underneath it had a cache of, I wouldn't even call it a cache, I would say it was a weapons storage facility of, you know, mu- like legit airplane munitions and, and big fucking explosives. And so at nighttime, because they bombed it, you know, all the stuff was going off sympathetically for like fucking two weeks. You know, shit was blowing up nonstop. And, and if you looked at like thermal or... Uh, or even on night vision, like it looked like you were staring at uh, the surface of the sun during like a solar flare flare up. You know, it was just like shit was blowing up fucking nonstop all over the place. Yeah. So it was almost like watching this crazy fucking, you know, uh, apocalyptic, you know, fireworks show. Yeah. But as we're fucking around and me and this guy that, you know, again, was the IS that, uh, that accompanied us, uh, we're sitting there and all of a sudden, just off to the left and probably five or 600 yards away, you see three little flashes of light. And I was like, did you see that? And he's like, yeah. I was like, what the fuck was that? He's like, I don't know. And then all of a sudden, straight south of us, about 300 yards, boom, boom, boom. And I was like, and we both kind of look at each other and you see three more blips. And then about fucking 200 yards south of us, fucking three big explosions. Shit. And then three more blips, and then now it's just fucking south of us. Three more big explosions, and we're and as soon as we look at each other, like, dude, we got to get the fuck off this rooftop. Yeah. Just as we're starting to go bail down, all of a sudden on the other side of I can't remember if it's the Tigris or the Euphrates, whatever the fuck river that uh, that his palace is on in Crete. All of a sudden, from the other side of the river, it sounds like. Um, a fucking transformer is having a seizure, right? Like Optimus Prime is fucking getting his ass pushed in. I don't know. Like it's this weird fucking rumble and whiz and fucking metal moving. And and then you just hear boop, 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 you know, like and all these flashes of light from across the river and where those three blips came from just fucking decimated. We didn't even know they were there. There was an army uh, counter artillery battery across the fucking river set up with their fucking whiz bang goddamn satellites and whatever the fuck else. And and it it took three iterations for them to pinpoint where they were and then they just fucking nailed them. We had no comms with them. Like I said, we didn't even know they were there. Jesus. I mean I wouldn't be fucking sitting here hundred percent if they hadn't been there. Cause we I mean we couldn't have got off that rooftop. The way it was situated and the way that we were up there, it would have taken us probably 30, 40 seconds to even get just on the first part of the stairwell to, to get down off of there and, and we'd have been fucked. Yeah. You know, um, but, uh, yeah, just one of those fucking lucky moments, I guess. But A lot of those. Yeah. <clears throat> Damn. Well, um, let's go back to uh, C-130 and uh, Scuds. Yeah. So... Where the C-130 came into play was was during that uh, that ambush that I spoke of. Um, our combat control and, and uh, comms guy got on the radio and had had a C-130 on station, fucking right away during that. Um, the downside was is is for that specific scenario. While it was awesome that they were right there, 
where the contact was coming from was 25 yards away. It was just way too fucking danger close to do anything about it. Um, so we, we weren't able to, to use them in, in that scenario. Um, but they were there, you know, and there were a lot of other times where when we were out and about, if we had run into anything like that and not had 25,000 Marines with us, we would have been able to, to use them, I think, probably a little more effectively. But there were just too many fucking blue forces everywhere for them to be able to engage comfortably, especially yeah. then. Yeah. You know, but. Um, what, what were you guys marked with or were you marked? Were you using strobes? Uh, if I remember correct, I think we were just using little fucking uh, squares of fucking IR tape on our helmets. Like That's super, it? Super old school, yeah. Oh, damn. Fuck. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yeah, I mean, again, at, at that time, like, a, a lot of the, the mechanisms and, and kind of uh, protocols put in place were put in place because of how little were there when it first started. Yeah. You know, so. Well, just for the audience, the reason I asked that is because um, that's how air deconflicts that's how they know where the good guys are is they have a ir strobe that blinks on top of their helmet or um on the vehicle or wherever and uh so that is how air assets like a c-130 knows where the good guys are and um that way they can be sure they're shooting the right fucking people and uh, not their own so to not to just have some glint tape yeah um is uh that that's that that yeah. could go bad pretty our, easy. Yeah, our our com guy may have had a an IR strobe and a fucking an islet or something or not yeah. an islet, but a, a fucking uh, green beam pec five or something. I mean, I don't know something. I just you know I wasn't the comms guy, and so I I don't know what the fuck they had or didn't have. I, I just remember I, I think we all had glint tape on our helmets. You know. No good. Damn. Well. Let's move on. Yeah. So from there, we spent uh, several weeks in Tikrit, uh, again, just basically, you know, solidifying our presence there, um, which was, uh, you know, the the start of setting up forward operating bases. And, and the way I understand it is that that, um, that uh, fucking um, palace ultimately ended up being like a, a state department office or an intel building or, or something like that and i think is still still manned by u.s forces uh, today I, I believe but uh so we basically just kind of handed it over to them and then from there made our way back down to baghdad and at that point uh seal team five was coming in to relieve us uh you know at that point we had been on deployment for eight months and, uh, and so SEAL Team 5 came in and, and we did, uh, you know, about the most half-assed turnover with them because it was, uh, it was just a quick turn and burn. Like we didn't have, hey, yeah. this is the FOB we've been in for the last six months and here's all of our target intel, you know, packages or whatever. We, there, there weren't any. You know, we, we had just finished basically taking the entire country over. And so it was like, okay, now you guys... Uh, you you've got it high five and and that was it and uh and so from there we made our way back down to kuwait and then flew flew commercial air out of kuwait back to back to the united states but damn yeah so i'm that was a uh a rough but a uh good deployment and you guys didn't take uh no no casualties no nope uh we had you know one guy got got injured uh and it was nothing serious it was it was during the go plat actually he, he fucked his hand up on uh 
during, I think it was breaching one of the uh, the doors and windows, is that he, he fucked his hand up fairly fairly well. I mean, he stayed for the rest of the deployment, but that was it. Uh, you know, I everybody had you know little things here or there, but nothing nothing that was uh, you know deployment ending. So. Yeah, yeah. We, we were pretty fortunate. You know, we'd been in a, in a number of gunfights, uh, had, had, you know, taken a, a number of, of en- enemy fucking KIAs with us and uh, and had no no real fucking problems of, of any of our guys other than the one that quit. That was the one casualty we had, I guess. But <laughs> yeah, but, uh, but yeah, we were, we were pretty fortunate. So, damn, I can't believe that fucking guy quit. Yeah, that's uh, yeah. Wow. That's yeah, a, it's weird. I mean, I, uh, I actually got a message from him not not that long ago uh, on Instagram. I didn't respond, um, but it was just like you know, hey, it's good good to see you're doing so well. Fucking cheers or whatever. And I was just like, fuck this guy, man. It was just like I had that same reaction that I did, you know, when I first saw him when we came back. I was like, dude, fuck you. Wow, you know, <laughs> just to fucking reach out. Like, yeah, uh, I mean, I, you know, I I can't whatever. put myself in his position, but. I wouldn't. I wouldn't reach out to me if I if I was that guy. Like I would. I, I just wouldn't do it. You know. Yeah. But yeah. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know how you don't feel. You know the amount of shame to ju- just say like, I'm not going to fucking talk to these guys. You know. I don't know. But probably his way of trying to make good yeah. one way or another. But um, well, fuck, man. Um, let's uh, let's just take a quick commercial break and. We'll pick up on uh, coming home. All right. I hope you guys are enjoying the show. I think this is a pretty good one. Hit pause. Go over to vigilanceelite.com. Pick yourself up one of these sweet shirts. And if you're lucky, Maybe these hats will be in stock, too. All right, so we're back from the break, and you just had a eighth-month deployment that was fucking completely full of action. Uh, You kicked off the war in Iraq, which is... Something to be said about that for sure. That's fucking incredible. And uh, so now you're coming home. And uh, let's go there. What are you doing when you get back? So it was a quick uh, transition, really. I mean, I when I got home, um, it was it was kind of surreal in that you know there, especially then, there was no transition time. You know, so it was literally like. When I was, I mean, I remember actually getting pulled over. My parents came to surprise me, uh, you know, to welcome me home. And so my wife at the time um, and and them, uh, you know, I spent the first, you know, night with the wife. And then the next day my parents, you know, surprised me at the house. And then we all went out to dinner. And on the way I got pulled over. Um, I don't even remember what the fuck for, but, you know, the cop you know, was giving me shit about either my license was fucking expired or one of the tags was or whatever and and you know i was like 36 hours ago i was in fucking baghdad and 
like now you're pulling me over because you know, it was like I just got home from an eight month fucking deployment or whatever. He was super understanding, but it was that moment that it kind it kind of hit me. It was like there there should be a better process for integrating back into civilian life after a deployment. You know, uh, I know that there is now. Uh, at least it's better to to what I understand, but. Um, you know, for me that it was weird going from, from that environment, just being shit right into Southern California, civilian fucking life, you know, and having a couple weeks leave. And then I had to check into a SQT seal qualification training as an instructor. Cause my, my time at team three was up. So it was a, it was a quick turnaround. There wasn't a lot of fiddle fucking around, uh, which I think ultimately was good is that I didn't have you know, a bunch of time to just fucking sit around. That couple of weeks was filled with doing shit around the house because having been gone for eight months and we we owned the house and it was an older house, so I had shit to do around there and then get ready to check into to SQT. And, and my plan from there was to screen and, and hopefully go to, to uh, Dev Group. And um, when I was about uh, seven or eight months into being an instructor, um, I developed valley fever, uh, which I've talked a little bit about. It's a, a lung, fungal lung infection where uh, it spreads through your, your uh, lungs like mold. And uh, I lost about 40% of my lung capacity. And so I was on convalescent leave for about uh, 10 months. And then from there, um, it was basically they, the infectious disease captain at Balboa uh, tried to medically retire me at that point. And, uh, I had a meeting with him and I just said, you know, hey, my first child is on the way. I don't have a college degree. Uh, I was planning on staying in and, and going this route. Uh, can we fucking figure something else out? Like, I don't I don't really want to get just medically booted out of the fucking Navy all of a sudden. And uh, so, you know, he said, well, you've got to go somewhere where you're not around lung irritants, you know, for, for a while, for a couple of years and, and try to let your lungs heal up as best they can and i was like well fuck everything we do is irritating to our lungs you know so yeah. the only other place to go where you know it was minimal uh, exposure to uh, lung irritants was uh, being a, a buds seal instructor and so the master chief at uh, at sqt and the master chief at uh, at bait on the basic side got together and just worked a fucking deal to send me over there and i spent my last three years there I uh, got got a college degree, um, had both my kids, and uh, and then fucking jump ship out of there. While I was there, uh, is when I you know really focused heavy on on dog training. Uh, you know, from the end of the deployment to Iraq to when I was first kind of exposed to them. During that time, being sick, I you know was like I said on convalescent leave for almost a year. <clears throat> with a lot of free time to, to focus on training and things of that nature. And then while I was an instructor, uh, kind of got, got to where, uh, I was working a little bit with the West coast, uh, canine guys and, uh, went to some training with them and was offered a position there as a handler and then turned it down and got out and started my own company. And that's where, that's where that kind of all started. But. What did the, uh, <clears throat> what did the lung disease, what, where did that come from? Do you know, or, uh, my best assumption is uh, is Nyland uh, because it was uh, just based on the incubation period and, and kind of where they caught it. Uh, it was determined that, you know, yeah, I, I got it. I picked it up somewhere out there. But Yeah, I'll bet that was uh, 
So you you went to you went to training, and then you wanted to fucking screen to go to Damn Neck to go get some more, and then and then you find out that's uh, slim to none chance. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, from the guys that I knew that um, that I'd done platoons with or knew from the community that had gone there and done well, and talking with them about it, you know, it, it seemed like. And I think for a lot of them, too, it seemed like what you thought the SEAL teams would be before you joined. It was more like dev group than the regular SEAL teams were. Not that there wasn't good shit going on in different pockets of the SEAL, regular SEAL teams, but you're always kind of hamstrung by the influx of, of new new guys into your platoon, kind of resetting that that lower standard right out of the gate every platoon, you know, so you just can't, you can't grow that much, I think, in a regular SEAL platoon the way you can at, at Damn Neck. And so um, my thought process was if I go to SQT as an instructor, uh, because my time at three is up, I could use that as a springboard to still be, you know, within the kind of relevant scope of tactics and training and, and teaching, uh, you know, the guys getting ready to go to SEAL teams, and, and while I'm there, screened to go to, to dev group, I could get in, in good shape. And so one thing I will say, the time spent in Iraq, um, you know, did, wreaked havoc on on all of our physical conditioning because of the, the conditions were so dire. I mean, we were eating two MREs a day, and that was it, you know, Damn. and no weights and no fucking... You know, it was wearing wearing kit around and whatever, but it was you know, I fuck, I dropped about thirty pounds and and was in pretty bad shape physically at the end of that, and uh, so I wanted to, you know, again get in really good shape and get ready to screen and then and then go, but at least while I was doing something still somewhat relevant or, or felt more relevant in the community while I was getting ready to do that, but then once I picked that up, it threw a wrench in fucking everything. So uh, yeah. <clears throat> Well, I mean, it definitely, I mean, would you say it turned into a positive? Yeah, I, you know, I, I look at it, and even, you know, when I was at the crossroads of whether or not to get out or stay in and be a handler, that was a tough, really tough decision because um, I wanted to be a handler. Uh, it was a fucking a really kind of enticing and, and attractive offer to, to stay in and do that. Um, where I struggled with that is in twofold is that physically – uh, I knew that that I was not at the capacity uh, that I was used to operationally, physically. Is that I honestly I was fucking scared that uh, that I wouldn't be able to fucking operate at a level I needed to to not be a fucking liability to everybody else. Uh, you know, to be at a point where your lungs are fucked up enough in the SEAL teams to get offered a, a medical retirement. You know, that doesn't happen for a fucking chest cold. Yeah. You know, so. Um, for me to be at that level, I, I was scared slash worried that uh, that I wouldn't be able to pull my fucking weight, and I didn't want to be that fucking guy that you know people have to make accommodations for. Um, yeah. So that was part of it. The other part was uh, just realizing that you know from an impact standpoint, uh, I've always tried to look at every decision I make in the long game of most bang for your buck uh, in terms of what impact that's going to have on my life, big picture. Uh, that's why I joined the SEAL teams. That's why I, you know, took the route that I took. It's, that's what ultimately why I got out is I felt that, you know, if I imported dogs and trained dogs and handlers and, you know, was, was a trainer at, at the MPC command on the West Coast and, you know, all of the other things that I've done, to me, that's going to have a much broader reach and impact 
than me with one dog going overseas doing deployments, you know? So, um, it was a, for sure a tough decision, like I said, but ultimately between those two factors, it just seemed at the time, like it made sense. And, you know, I'm absolutely glad that I did. I, you know, I, I wouldn't change anything. I wouldn't be where I'm at now, uh, had I done, done it different, you know, and I, I am really happy with, uh, with how my life's turned out. So, um, you know, I, I think it was for the best, but yeah, I mean, well, I definitely would say you made the right decision considering, you know, you got dogs at the teams and agencies all over the fucking world. And, and uh, so you're definitely making a uh, major impact. But um, so, so uh, how was, uh, did you hit any like real dark spots coming home from that, being addicted? To combat or any of that? Uh, you know, I, I never did. I, I never, you know, it's one of the things where I've seen a lot of guys that I know really well and respect the hell out of have a lot of fucking trouble with things. Um, I, I never did. You know, it, it never, there was never a time where I felt like, uh, you know, either I was missing out or that I felt bad about any of the things that we did or or saw or, or whatever. Uh, it just, you know, I, I don't know why, like, I don't know if I'm fortunate, if I'm fucking oblivious, if it's a combination of the thing, I, I really have no, no grasp of why, um, you know, I, I, what, again, whether it's things that you saw or, or did or whatever, or the missing that, you know, being in camaraderie and feeling like, you know, you're not in the fight anymore or whatever. I think <clears throat> for me, I, I would, count myself as uh, really fortunate in that I, I was able to transition into a career that still had a lot of adrenaline in it. You know, when you, as you'll find out here shortly is when you jump in a bite suit and have a dog fucking coming after you like that, that will give you the same fucking rush that a lot of things that we've done in the SEAL teams will do for you. Um, being around high drive dogs that make your asshole pucker when you just clip a leash to them and they look at you like fucking, you know, you want some chief, you know, they, they give you that look and it, and it, it's uh, exhilarating for sure. Uh, plus, you know, coming back as a trainer for the West coast multi-purpose canine program, a couple of years after I got out, like I was working with guys that I was, that I'd been in with guys that I was instructors with guys that I'd, you know, been to war with, like it was, it was really the best of everything, you know, it was because I was doing what I was passionate about in the dogs. So being able to select dogs from anywhere in the world, uh, you know, of the highest caliber and, and working with guys that I know, love and trust and, and consider brothers in arms and, and marrying those two things up together and sending them overseas to, <clears throat> to operate. You know, to me, it's like, how do you fucking get any better than that? Yeah. You know, so... Um, there's no question that played a huge role in me never sinking into that, you know, kind of depressed, like, fuck, I'm not part of the community anymore. Or, you know, I'm, I'm not associated with the, with the teams or I don't feel like I'm a SEAL or, or whatever. Like I, I just, whether it's that or working with police departments and, you know, SWAT teams or, uh, you know, taking in retired warrior found, uh, dog foundation dogs or whatever, like I, I still feel like I'm still kind of part of it enough, you know, for me to not just, just not have that feeling of, uh, of darkness or depression with it. Did you have any, uh, it sounds like you pretty much stepped out and, uh, I mean, it doesn't sound like you had a whole hell of a lot of downtime when you did get out. And 
So did you kind of step right into your business? Uh, not exactly. Uh, there was about a about a year period um, that I did a little bit of contract work uh, here in the States teaching basic pistol and rifle um, to some Army guys as a warfighter-focused contract through a, uh, a company in Arkansas. I did that for about uh, three or four months and, uh, and then transitioned into a job at ExxonMobil as a drill rig supervisor company man for, uh, for about six months, uh, where I went to, uh, uh, I, I was the, the drilling rig supervisor on a fucking, on a natural gas, uh, rig in Northern Colorado for two weeks on two weeks off. And, uh, you know, my experience with, uh, with oil rigs at that point had been taking them down. That's, that was my <laughs> knowledge of, <laughs> of fucking oil rigs. So I had no, no fucking clue what I was doing, but Exxon takes a, a neat, position and that they hire the type of person that they want and then they teach them what they want to know and they're very very good at, at doing that but uh, at any rate I was I did that for about six months and then there was a security supervisor walking through doing rounds uh, and kind of got all the the specs on everybody who was there and he he came to me he's like what the fuck are you doing here you know and I was like I mean I didn't hire me you guys hired me yeah. and put me here and, you know and he's like you should be working for me in, in security. Do you want a job in, you know, being a security advisor? I was like, yeah. You know, so I, I went and, and tried to do that. That was an executive position. And, uh, you know, for me, I, I realized very quickly that that was not my fucking cup of tea. Um, they wanted to send me to Papua New Guinea to work on this multi-billion dollar uh, natural gas pipeline project between China, Papua New Guinea, and Australia implementing security protocols into this pipeline project being built. And once I started kind of looking at what they were trying to do and and the security protocols that they wanted to implement, I realized uh, some changes needed to be made and they didn't want to hear what my changes, uh, they had no interest in, in what my opinions were. They just wanted me to, to do what I was told. And uh, for me at that point, I was at the point where um, I had my dog business about ready to, to start anyway. And I'll be the first to admit, I mean, my entire plan the whole time with taking that job was a springboard out of the military while I was setting the dog business up. So, you know, my intention was never to be there for very long anyway. Um, but at that point, it just made sense to to bail out anyway. It was a little earlier than I wanted to in terms of, you know, like my kennel facility wasn't built. Uh, I just had a couple of slabs thrown down with some cheese dick uh, kennel paneling up. And, and so, the you know, for the first... Uh, year or so uh you know my kennels were, were pretty pretty rough elementary uh kennels with not a lot of uh creature comforts but uh you know like with anything that's how you start and you build from there and and uh that's that's how i did that and then started the business right after that so not a lot of downtime but i i didn't start the dog business right away i, I did that for you know about 10 months 11 months all right well um you know uh we did have a conversation the other night about uh about boozing and and uh you know shit like that and uh so and uh i kind of want to revisit that here uh because this part helps a lot of guys <clears throat> um but we both i think were i mean i definitely was uh full full-blown fucking alcoholic raging uh alcoholic bar fighting and uh ruined all my relationships whatever i've said it a million times but uh how long after you left did you kind of uh i mean 
kick that. You've kicked it now, and uh, that's not fucking easy to do. Yeah, I mean, so for me, I would say it it never seemed like it was a, a problem for me in terms of of it causing causing any issues is that what I found for me was that if I casually had a drink, which is typically how I've always been, I've never been a big drinker, but, you know, in getting out, what I found myself doing was, you know, especially like in the wintertime and, and living out at the kennel facility and, you know, having a fire going is like most nights I'd want to have a, a glass of bourbon. And then it was, I found myself like every night wanting to do that. And for, and for, for me, like that was enough for me to say, I know where this is going to lead. Like I, I never, you know, would get drunk. Oh, okay. Or, you know, it was never a problem like that. It was, it was more of a, I can see this pattern in going from, you know, having a couple drinks a month to a couple a week to now I, 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 I just like subconsciously find myself having a, a glass of bourbon every night, you know, after dinner or whatever. And, and to me that that's when it was like, I, I know I've seen too many guys go down this fucking path and I know, you know, I have a very OCD personality that way or addictive personality, whether it's chewing tobacco or cigarettes or, you know, fucking fast cars or, or whatever is that, you know, when I do something like a, it's just, you know, it's, it's never enough, you know, like if, if I'm driving a certain car or whatever, like it feels fast and then it doesn't, and then I need something faster and then that's cool for a little while and then it feels normal. And then now I, you know, need faster and it's that way kind of with everything. And so again, I think just seeing so many guys, go down that path for, for me was enough just for me to realize that it was, it would turn into that if, if I didn't just stop doing it. And so that's why, I mean, it's been, I mean, even, I mean, I've been out for over 10 years now and, uh, you know, I, I just, I mean, I, I can say probably in the last eight years, seven years, maybe I, you know, I just, I haven't, I haven't drank hardly at all. You know, it's a, a couple times a year and that's really about it. Yeah. You know, so, um, but my my personality is very much that way. I think where, again, I just feel very fortunate in that, you know, the, the things that I've allowed to to become addicted to, you know, are mostly uh, chewing tobacco, which, I, you know, we talked about that. I haven't done that in a few years because it was causing problems with my mouth. Um, you know, sweets, same thing. It's like I, I just don't keep them in the fucking house. As an example, I open this. This is gone. Yeah. So... You know, I had a whole fucking bag of gummy bears sitting here, like, you know, sweets and nicotine and caffeine, you know, things like that. I, I know how I am with stuff like that. And I, if it's there, I will fucking take it. So I just stay away from the things that I know if, if you do consume a lot of that, it's going to cause serious fucking problems. I just stay away from it entirely. So you just, you know, you do not know moderation. Not, yeah, I mean, not with the things that I enjoy. It's like, I just, I want as much of it as I can fucking get, you know, yeah. and so, um, so yeah, I just for the things that I know that if you take that, it's going to cause life-changing implications. I just fucking stay away from it altogether, you know, including fucking booze. But uh, that's some fucking discipline. Do you think uh, you replace that with with uh, with your business? Do you know moderation when it comes to business? Yeah, I, I would say there's probably a healthy, or a healthy, not maybe not the right word to use, <laughs> uh, a heavy dose of that. And that uh, I, you know, I don't take vacations. I I don't take time off. I get you know, a lot of people that are, are close to me regularly tell me, dude, you need to take a fucking vacation or like you need to take some time off. You need to find something to, you know, to, to relax and, and put that, uh, you know, turn, turn the fucking business mind off and, and work on, 
nothing for a little while or, or whatever, you know, so. Uh, have you been, I'm curious because I have that problem, but uh, have you found any success in fucking turning it off? Not really. What I have found is, uh, at least for me, and maybe I'm lying to myself, you know, of course I'm a little biased in thinking maybe I've struck a, a decent balance in, you know, I work out, uh, I swim, and I like to I like to drive, you know, like that's kind of a good decompression or go to movies, which even that hasn't hasn't happened in a few months now with everything being fucking closed, but uh, or you know, good a good meal out to dinner. Similarly, you know, uh, those two things have kind of been turned off the last few months. But uh, to me, in, instead of <clears throat> trying to carve out days or a week of of time to to relax and vacation and get away from you know running my dick into the ground business wise. Um, I, I take shorter breaks because for me, it, it would, it would be almost torturous for me to go on a vacation where like my phone was off for a week. Like I, I would probably lose my fucking mind, Yeah, you know, uh, cause I'd constantly be worried about, well, you know, what, what if something happened out at the kennel with one of the dogs or one of the employees or one of my client dogs, what if there's a problem? Like it's just not, not being able to be gotten a hold of is, is a kind of a problem for me mentally, I think, um, just because there's. A lot of people that depend on me, you know, and it's not uncommon to get a call at any fucking time of day by, you know, a client that has a question about a dog, not necessarily a problem, but maybe the dog got hurt and they don't know what to do, you know, whatever it is, Um, you know, or with with my kids, uh, you know, or my ex or whatever is that I just I kind of always have that um, almost panicky feeling of, you know, if I just unplug and nobody can get a hold of me. There's there's too many people that depend on me that I don't want to fucking let them down, you know. And so, uh, one of the downsides of having a kennel with fucking almost thirty dogs in it is that is that you kind of feel indefinitely chained to the kennel in in a way, and that you know it's it's always there, you know. If the employees decide, you know, what, I'm fucking tired of this, you know, you're you're one person being tired of cleaning up dog shit away from me needing to be out there doing it day in day out, you know. So. Uh, it just makes it really hard for me to to completely unplug. So for me, again, the kind of the way that I've kind of tried to take the middle ground with that is is movies and driving and working out and swimming and you know just taking maybe a half day here or a few hours to go fuck off and do whatever I want or whatever and try to mix that in a few times a week. But yeah, that's uh, that's <clears throat> sounds like pretty sound advice. Maybe I should fucking take it, but. Uh... I mean, had it not been for, uh, you know, business and your uh, passion with dogs, do you think uh, the drinking would have been a different story? Probably. I think I'd be a fucking miserable wretch if uh, if I hadn't started my own business and, and done what I've done. If I had to work for somebody else doing some, some other fucking job or, like, stayed at Exxon, I can't even fucking imagine how how just much of a miserable piece of shit I would, I would be to be around if, uh, if that was the case. I mean, I'm a big, I'm a big enough pain in the ass to be around as it is. Right? <laughs> um, you know, so yeah, I, I think, uh, I think a lot of things probably would have, would have panned out pretty shitty had I not, uh, you know, followed what, what I'm passionate about. And, and for anybody listening, like, I, I can't stress that enough, you know, is that, Money isn't going to make you happy. Stuff doesn't make you happy. Fucking women don't make you happy. Drugs won't. Booze won't. Fast cars won't. Uh, all of those things, you know, may be satisfying here and there or, you know, augment your life to a certain extent. 
the only thing that's going to truly make you fucking satisfied and happy is, is if what you do is something you truly fucking believe in. Yeah. You know, because if, if it's not, you're going to be fucking miserable your whole goddamn life. You're going to be chasing the next fucking thing, the next paycheck, the next job, the next gig, the next fucking chick, whatever. Is that you're you're never going to be satisfied and never going to be happy if you don't if you don't strongly believe in what the fuck you're doing. Yeah. And and I, I can't can't fucking stress that enough. Yeah, I definitely would agree with that. I I think uh, I think starting a business has actually probably saved a lot of lives because it it uh, it becomes especially for guys like us coming home uh, it 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 becomes the new addiction that never fucking ends and uh and it's it's a uh you know it's a positive addiction because you uh you have fucking purpose now and uh i've seen a lot of guys to include myself that have uh pulled themselves out of pretty deep rut and uh once they kind of get going in their business and they see that holy shit this is possible they see guys like you uh you know who started at the ground level um it's like I said at the beginning of the show, it's fucking, uh, uh, it's very inspiring. And, and uh, so I would encourage anybody, you know, who's in that fucking rut to, that's listening to consider becoming an entrepreneur yeah. and uh, making something of themselves. <clears throat> but, yeah. I mean, you know, to me, if, uh, if you don't, I mean, you can almost guarantee being fucking miserable, you know? Yeah. And if you think about, you know, every great product that's ever been made, Every, you know, big fucking decision that ever fucking panned out right or, uh, you know, any any moment in history that was worth fucking writing down, right, is that prior to that, there was a choice to be made and and there was a bold fucking choice to be made that, that somebody said, you know what, I'm going to grab a hold of my fucking nuts and I'm going to goddamn do this. And they went and did it, you know, and had they not, you didn't it would never have become a, a historic event. Yeah. You know, that shit doesn't happen by accident. It doesn't fall on your lap. You know, you don't just walk out the door going for a fucking stroll and shit like that happens. Like, you, you got to fucking get after it. Uh, and, and a lot of times it is fucking scary. You know, a lot of times there is no guarantee. You, you don't know what the fuck's going to happen next. And you can't control a lot of the intangibles that are going to add stress to your life. But, you know, if you believe in what you're doing uh, and you give it everything you have, that fucking struggle will fuel you, uh, you know, to be successful and, and ultimately to be fucking happy with whatever it is that you're doing. Right on the money, man. Um, did you? Were you always in Texas? Did you start your business in Texas? Or? I did. Yeah, I you know growing up in Iowa, went to uh, San Diego and, and was on active duty there the whole time. And then as as I was getting out, moved to to the kennel facility property where where I'm still at. I uh, I have a, a different residence that I live in. Uh, that's not co-located with the property anymore, but uh, <clears throat> but I own both of them, and and uh, yeah, I've, I've been here ever since. So it's been twelve years now, almost twelve years now. Right on. So how did Tricos start? Tricos was your first company, correct? Tricos was actually my second company. It's your second company. It is. Yep. So the first company I started, I'm not going to mention the name of it. Uh, I I had two business partners, one of which uh, was a ranger, uh, one of which was a seal. And it was kind of the perfect trifecta on paper in terms of, you know, I had the dog knowledge and contacts within the industry. Uh, one of the other guys had uh, a lot of high-level government, you know, connections and, and contacts and, and knew all the right people in the right places. 
And then the last guy was uh, was an officer. This is, he was a SEAL officer that uh, you know was a was a, a pretty decent business mind and had some good connections uh, in you know investment banking and hedge fund managers and, and startup funding and shit like that. And so you know, again, starting out, it was like well, this is a perfect fucking relationship. You know, we'll do dogs and contracts, and you know, we kind of have all all bases figured and. Ended up having a, a falling out. I, I, I'm not going to get into all of the details. It was a pretty shitty fucking scenario for me and, and the other guy. Um, you know, the the third party uh, just frankly fucked both of us over. And uh, and so <clears throat> at that time, uh, basically fucking disbanded. A bunch of shit happened. And, uh, and I just com- I had to completely fucking start over after, you know, building a, a seven-figure dog company in a, in a matter of a few years. Holy and, shit. And having to completely fucking start over. So Tricos is 2.0. So when I talk about, you know, picking your fucking nuts up and, and just doing it and not letting anything discourage you, I, I don't say that from a, a, a perch of not having been through any of that, you know. And, and at that time, I mean, I was coming back from the West Coast with about $2,300 in, in my bank account and a brand new fucking Jeep Grand Cherokee that I leased like a fucking idiot uh, with no job and no fucking company and absolutely no revenue coming in, going back to a family of, of four with two young fucking kids, a mortgage, the whole fucking ball of wax, and no goddamn idea how I was going to fucking make it. Shit. And uh, a good friend of mine uh, who we went through we went through Buds uh, with together, um and a guy in, in Colorado that uh, I will say his name because I, I, I would not be where I'm at without him. His name's Harvey. And, uh, you know, he, he in conjunction with my buddy Sean, both of them, uh, you know, I kind of told them what was going on because just coincidentally, he wanted to buy a dog from me. Uh, he wanted a personal protection dog. And, uh, and Harvey was his business mentor. And so, um, you know, just coincidentally at that same fucking time, you know, he was, he was just like, Hey, I want to get a dog. How's things going? Whatever. And I was like, dude, fucking terrible. It's like, here's what happened. He's like, Jesus fucking Christ. And he was like, let me, you know, let me talk to Harvey. Let me see what's up. And, and, uh, so they basically helped me get, get started, uh, you know, to at least get the business formed and help with, uh, with some, you know, startup funds and, and, uh, you know, buy, buy some dogs and start selling them. And just, you know, at that point it was, it was just me doing it, but, you know, so the work had now tripled, um, you know, but there was at least, you know, some, some assistance and, you know, to this day, had it not been for, for his help, I, uh, there's no way I would have made it. I don't think, you know, Um, so, but, uh, so he helped me out to, to get back on my feet, get started. And then I just ran with it from there. And, uh, you know, here we are fucking eight years later, yeah, and uh, and it's you know back far more successful than my first dog company, and it's and it's just just me that owns it, you know. So, um, without a doubt, the you know the trials and tribulations and and difficulties that exist, uh, you know, are are not unique to just you. I don't mean you. I mean anybody that's listening that thinks like, hey, I got fucked over or whatever, like. You know, there, there's always a fucking way you can figure out, you know, a way around it. There's somebody that you know that, that can help you or uh, even if it's just having to rely on you and getting a second fucking job or, or doing something else, you know, while you set that business up or, or whatever. Uh, there is always a way, you know, that you can get to where you want to be and, and ultimately fucking be successful if, if you just never fucking give up, you know. Yeah. Um, 
I'll be the first to admit, like there were times where uh, it, it was a fucking struggle. You know, it was putting bills on credit cards and fucking moving money around from this credit card to that credit card because it was a lower interest rate or, or what it was a zero interest for three months. And so, you know, I put three credit card balances on this one because it was a lower interest rate. I mean, there was several years of of it being that fucking tight, you know, and, and not knowing, you know, how I was going to make fucking shit happen this month and next month. And then that's the that's the rub with owning a, a business. You know, it's not a guaranteed paycheck. And not only is being an entrepreneur not for everybody, fuck, it's not for most people. Yeah. Uh, you know, because that stress of never really knowing, you know, if, if you're going to fucking make it that month, that usually is is present for a while before you get to a point where you're financially can kind of take a breath and say, you know, even if I didn't have money coming in the rest of the year, we'd still be just fine. Like it, it takes a while to get to that fucking point, you know? And so, um, you know, to me, the, again, the lesson is just no matter how bad it seems, just don't fucking stop, just keep grinding it out. And, and, and that is the one, the one thing that I've noticed in, in all the people I've met in the last, you know, 12 years of owning my own business and networking and selling dogs to incredibly fucking successful people. And, and that's the one common denominator with all of them is that, you know, they, they've all been through bankruptcies and nasty divorces and getting fucked over by business partners and losing everything and having to start over. And, and the one fucking thing that all of them have in common is they just never fucking gave up, you know, and, and they fought with everything they had all the fucking time when they were when they were struggling and when they were down. Yeah. You know, I, w- <clears throat> I wasn't expecting to go down this road at all, but I'm glad we did. And, uh, you know, I mean, you mentioned that nothing fucking falls in your lap. And, uh, you know, uh, a lot of people, you know, they, uh, they, they see where you're at now or, you know, even me, they see, they think they see where I'm at now, but it's shit's fucking hard, you know? And, uh, you get a lot of the, oh, that must be fucking nice I shit. I hate that shit. You but, know. Uh, you know, they didn't see the fucking sacrifices that you made to get there. They didn't see, you know, everybody's getting fucking paid from your business except you. And uh, and uh, I can totally fucking relate to that. I mean, shit, I've been, Vigilance Elite's been going for five years, and I just took my first fucking paycheck ever uh, last week. <laughs> yeah. Well, congrats. Goddamn. Thanks. Yeah. But, um, but, uh, yeah, you know, it's, it's easy, uh, for people to, um, write it off and, and say, oh, I can't fucking do it. Or, you know, that guy's fucking, you never know what the fuck's going on behind the scenes. Yeah. And, uh, and, uh, you know, I said it once, I'll say it again. Like, it's, it's, it's awesome to see how I, I didn't know that you got fucked over like that and to start all over from scratch and to see, where you're at now, I mean, I think a lot of people would probably be jealous, but I think it's just fucking incredible, you know. And, I, I appreciate it. I, uh, like I said, I, you know, to me, I, I see some of that sometimes of the underhanded fucking comments of, you know, must be nice, you know, like yeah. something as dumb as like posting a picture of a of a inexpensive steak or something, and like, well, I wish I could afford that or whatever, and it's like. Yeah. If you've got the time to, to post that, yeah. <laughs> then you then you don't you're not working hard enough. Yeah. Like if you've got enough time to sit on your phone on a fucking social media platform and bitch on somebody's feed about how you can't afford something, you're a, then you're fucking wrong. Period. Yeah. You know, then you're not working hard enough. Like you shouldn't be on your phone 
bitching about how you can't afford something if you can't afford something that you want to buy. Yeah. You know, so I, I can't stand that shit. Um, me neither. But uh, but it's there and it's always going to be there. And, and to me, it's it's just important to, to ignore it, uh, you know, and let, let your success do the talking, A, and, and if there's any wrongs that have been done. I mean, to me, there, there is no fucking better revenge than success. Yeah. You know, uh, I don't need to fucking say anything to the people that either doubted me or tried to fuck me over or, or even still to this day, you know, don't like the fact that, that, you know, the success that I've had, that I've had. And, and, uh, I, you know, I don't, I don't need to argue with them about it. I'll just keep doing it, you know, cause it's, it's fucking pointless and it's counterproductive. So, um, but yeah, I, I hear you a hundred percent. Yeah. I mean, maybe if uh, you get off your fucking ass and do something, you could afford the yeah. fucking steak. But um, moving on with your business, uh, there seems to be, um, what I'm learning is there's turning points in business. And uh, I'm kind of wondering if you've had turning points. And I'm what I want to know is, was your book a major turning point? Uh, for your business where you felt like maybe you cleared a hump and uh, took it next level? Yeah. You know, strangely enough, not really. Uh, I I think most people would uh, probably assume that, and and I certainly understand why. And and I think, you know, to a large extent, I would have thought that it would have felt that way more than it did. It it really didn't. It was cool. Um, You know, it was a a great experience. but in terms of like all of a sudden feeling like, wow, I made it, you know, even even hitting number four on the New York Times bestseller list. What does that really fucking get you? Nothing. Hmm. You know, if that's not accompanied by, you know, a revenue stream that's recurring that, you know, gives you the ability to to have the, the freedom and flexibility to retire early or, uh, you know, invest in somebody else's business or whatever, then then what good does that ultimately do if being an author isn't really what you do for a living? Yeah. You know, so it, it really doesn't mean a whole lot uh, as far as, you know, the, the reality or the, the tangible application of writing a book that, that does really well that way. So when it's with a major publishing house also similarly monetarily is there's not there's not a lot to that for the author. Really? Uh, no. You know, if you, if you self-publish, you know, and, and uh, you know, you're making 97 cents of every dollar that's spent on that book, then that's a different story. But when you're making 15 cents, you know, of every dollar spent on that book, then it, it's very different. So, um, you know, what I would say is that, and, and this, I think that this kind of really highlights my my point of tenacity as it relates to business is that there there wasn't any one like no shit turning point, even being on 60 minutes, like there was a nice little bump of interest and whatever, same with the book, same with, you know, different interviews that have come along, you know, or, or big, uh, magazine articles that I've been in or whatever, you know, it gives you a little, a little bump, but that swell goes away real fucking quick, you know? And so to me, what, what it's been is just, it's, it's been a nice natural fucking linear progression. Um, and there, there hasn't been like a, holy shit, here's where I'm now over the hump. It just, it just kind of eventually got to that point for me. Okay. Um, and, and, in a large part because I just kept, kept doing it, you know, um, it, once I got to this point, I would, I would take, you know, some of the, the revenue from, from this stream and, and cr- try to create another one. And, and some of them have completely bombed, you know, there's been products or services or things that I've said, yeah, let me try this. I'm going to 
dump a bunch of time and money and resources into trying this for a little while and it just doesn't fucking pan out. Um, there's been, there's been a number of them, you know, you can't let that get you down. You're not, you're not going to knock everyone out of the fucking park. I think uh, business is largely about base hits, just like the fucking game of baseball is. I mean, yeah, everybody wants the grand fucking slam, but base hits and, and RBIs and shit like that are what win the game, you know, and, and just being consistent and in and, and a steady state of, of moving forward and pushing and driving and, and, uh, and going for the, the small wins. You know, if all you ever do is swing for the fucking fences, I think, as I know you can attest to, you're, you're probably going to strike the fuck out, you know? Yeah. So, um, yeah, it's just, it's been, it's been that natural progression pretty much the, the whole way, but. Slow and steady wins the race. Yeah. Uh, well, I mean, your books were, they were all bestsellers, correct? Were, yeah. And, uh, so, I mean, did, did you feel like a huge, maybe it didn't benefit you that much financially, but, uh, did, was that a huge, uh, did, did you get a great sense of accomplishment after that first one? I mean, to a certain extent, yes. Um, I, like I said, I mean, for me, the way I looked at it is just, it, it was an honor to, to have that as an accomplishment, you know? And so for a little while it was kind of that like, holy shit, like I'm a New York times bestselling author. That's fucking weird to even say that, Yeah. you know? And then the second book, the same thing. And then the third book, the same thing, you know? So yeah, to have three New York times bestsellers is even more fucking weird. Um, but again, I've always, you know, with most things like that, I've, I've always kind of tampered my enthusiasm with, well, what does that really fucking translate to? You know, and if, and if it doesn't translate to anything that, that I can tangibly fucking wrap my arms around, then I'm not going to spend very much time dancing in the end, end zone over it, you know. Um, yeah. And I really feel that way with, with everything is is that, you know, take the wins, but use what you get from that to, to you know, now help you try for the next one. Uh, within reason. I mean, to me, you get to a certain point and, and uh, you know, I'm certainly not, uh, um, you know, in a position where I've not, you know, enjoyed things or treated myself in, in certain ways. I mean, you you can't just put every fucking dime back into the business for the rest of your life. And I mean, to, to me, like, what's the fucking point? Yeah. You know, but to me, you, you shouldn't start treating yourself until you're at a point where it really fucking makes sense to, you know, there's, there's a difference between uh, being able to buy something and being able to afford something, mm -hmm. you know. And I think, you know, once you realize where that fucking contrast is and where that, that line goes from, yeah, I can actually afford this, that's when you, you start, you know, whether it's buying a watch or a car or a fucking new house or, you know, whatever it is, like, you know, enjoy the, the fruits of your labor and hard work. Just don't be a fucking idiot about it, you know. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, you know what's cool about the books and and everything you've done is I mean you're you're this is important to me and uh, I'm sure it is to you too but I mean your name is fucking stapled I mean you, it will always be out there forever yeah. you know and uh, there's not a whole hell of a lot of people that can fucking say that so uh, I think that uh, you know uh, is uh, very self gratifying uh, to know that. When you're gone, your fucking name is going People to are still going to be wiping their ass with the pages of my book. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but, um, but, and, yeah, so I, I think that that shit's fucking cool as fuck, man. But uh, how did uh, how did you kind of start with business? I mean, it seems like you have kind of uh, 
fuck, I can't even count all the components uh, of your business, but you've got teamdog.pet, which is a training, online training. You've got Troikos, which is the uh, real training and products, correct? Yeah. Then you have the Mic Drop podcast, which is a fucking huge success and also a staple that will always be there. And you have the Warrior Dog Foundation. So am I missing anything? Uh, and I'm a dad, you know, to me, that's a, that's a big part of my life and, uh, and something that, you know, is as hard as it is and has been, it's, uh, something that I, I take very serious and, and have a lot of, uh, pride in, in seeing the kids grow and, and, uh, hopefully turn into, uh, productive members of society. Um, you know, so, uh, but yeah, I mean that, that other than that, you know, on the bit, that's more on the personal side, but on the, yeah, on the business side, that's, that's pretty much everything. I mean, I'm always... You know, thinking of new uh, avenues or, or revenue streams, whether it's products or uh, product-based business, you know, implementing new things into the, the team dog uh, training site or adding another product or, you know, things like that. But uh, to me, I, I feel like I'm kind of at a point where, I mean, I don't want to say I feel like I, I kind of have it figured out, but I, I at least feel more comfortable in what I'm doing. And I don't get up every day thinking just like, holy fuck, I'm overwhelmed and I don't know which goddamn direction is up. I don't, I don't feel that way anymore. I feel like I'm in a pretty good rhythm and, and the, the different uh, components of my business are all operating fairly efficiently and, and successfully. Uh, but I also feel like I'm, uh, you know, that's about as much as I can fucking handle too. You know, there's not, uh, there's not really a whole lot more I, I can add. I mean, uh, and the bitch of it for me, I think, is I have a lot of good ideas but I'm, I'm realistic to the fact that I can't implement any of them without just half-assing the shit out of them and, and yeah. ultimately them them not working. There's times even right now where I feel like I, I probably have more things going on than I should yeah, uh, and, and feel a little behind the power curve scheduling-wise on a, on a pretty fucking regular basis. But Yeah. I think, uh, I don't know, maybe part of that might be, uh, I think some of us uh, with our background... We kind of create that pressure yeah. because we work well under pressure um, subconsciously. Yeah. Um, but but uh, you know where where did you start? You started with three dogs the second time around, uh, correct? You uh, said uh, your friend helped you, and you got three dogs. Oh well, so I, I got uh, a few dogs. I don't remember even exactly how. I think it was maybe five, but. Um, you know, it was, it was a combination of doing a, of three main things, which was breeding, importing dogs for whether it was police departments, military groups, or personal protection candidates, uh, clients rather, and then the actual physical hands-on training, whether it's, you know, doing seminars or working a contract for, you know, police, military, what, what have you. So that was kind of the, those were the main three things that I, that I started working on. And then, and then shortly thereafter, the book. Uh, opportunity presented itself, um, you know, and, and that's when I, you know, tried to capitalize on that and did. And, and then, you know, years went by um, and, and the Warrior Dog Foundation was a component, you know, early on then too. But but that was not something that I came up with. It was just um, there was a couple of dogs that needed a place to go and nobody would take them. Uh, and they were, you know, tier one fucking pipe hitter dogs that had been on a number of deployments, saved a bunch of fucking dudes' lives. Um, you know, and, and I was like, well, if nobody takes them, what the fuck is going to happen? They're like, well, we'll probably put them down. I was like, 
fuck you, send them. I'll take yeah, them. You know, not happening. So, um, but, uh, you know, so because of that, you know, I was pretty singular focused on, you know, from a, from a business standpoint, all service-based industry stuff. You know, it all required my fucking time. Yeah. You know, and so after years of that, of, of and this was probably the, the hardest lesson I learned, the, the no shit hard way, was that, you know, not only people talk about time being money and, and fuck you, time is way more valuable than money. Yeah. You know, because you can't make any more of it. You know, the time that you and I are spending, that's gone. Yeah. You know, today is gone. To, you know, tomorrow when it's done, it's gone. Like you can't reinvest it. You can't make more of it. You can't give some to your kids. Uh, you know, so because of that, you know, I got to a point where I was like, I'm going to wake up when I'm 60 years old, scrubbing dog shit off of fucking kennel walls, you know, road tripping seven fucking ass eaters from, you know, Texas to fucking New York or whatever, um, just running my dick into the ground. And, and I'm going to wake up and my life is going to be behind me financially in the same fucking boat I am now if I don't do something different. Yeah. And that's when it was okay. I, I need to figure out how to have a more product based at least equilibrium business-wise. There's always going to be a service component to what I do, whether it's, you know, protection dog or a seminar or a fucking phone consult. I mean, whatever. Like, people are, are going to take my time up, but it can't be just that. Yeah. And so I've I've kind of crossed over into the more mainstream, and that's where teamdog.pet really comes into play is that that's for your average everyday dog owner as well as you know a lot of the products that i have the dog crate the collar and leash the cbd oil the food and treats they're all you know for your average everyday dog owner and, and so um it's it's kind of you know heading into that that realm of uh you know where you know it's a product it's a, a tangible product that people can buy and and they don't need my fucking time to to do it you know and so i've, yeah. I've kind of uh, spent a fair bit of time bolstering that and trying to get that to where it's a much more uh, relevant uh, aspect of the business. Speaking of team, uh, team dog dot pet, <clears throat> and uh, I'm getting ready to dive into that as soon as you leave uh, yeah. with Tony. Yeah. But um, how many, how interactive are you in that, and how many videos are in there? How much content yeah. is in that? Uh, is in that? portion of your business which is which is uh for those of you that don't know it's online dog training again team dog dot pet and uh it's all mike yeah so really what it is is that you know the the last book that i wrote team dog you know it, it's the the video representation of that uh and so all of the concepts that i talk about uh, and the reason why it's called team dog how to train your dog the navy seal way is not to teach a Labradoodle how to be a fucking bite dog. It's the the reason that the SEAL teams have, and this is my bust for, you know, being this complicated in a fucking book title. That, that was a, a lesson learned is I, I shouldn't have gone that deep in it because most people don't give a fuck. But uh, is that, you know, that the SEAL teams have the reputation they have not just because SEALs are good operators. You know, if you think about all of the other components that go into SEALs being good operators, it's a hard selection course it's crazy fucking consistent training and lots of it it's good funding it's great fucking intelligence assets it's high speed equipment it's great fucking leadership it's all of these other uh, environmental factors and intangibles that uh, you know all in conjunction 
set us up for success to be as as good at at what we do as we are. And with training a dog, it's no different. Is that if you just focus on training, you know, you're you're really cutting yourself off at the heels. It's what do you feed the dog? How much mental engagement do you interact with the dog? Uh, what is their body composition? Are they a fat fuck? Are they malnourished? Uh, are they getting enough sunlight? You know, are are you utilizing the different tools that they have genetically to aid in your training? I.e., you know, a dog that could fucking care less about a tennis ball, well, then you shouldn't be using a tennis ball to train the dog. If the dog likes attention versus not liking it, it you know, has high food drive versus not, all of these different things that kind of go into it. Um, or, or what contribute to you being able to, to teach your dog whatever the fuck you want relatively easy and pretty quickly. Uh, and, you know, so I, I found myself having a lot of these conversations with people, you know, at, at speaking events or, or you know, what, wherever I was going, traveling, people say, oh, I have a dog that's doing this. You know, how the fuck do I fix that? You know, and, and there's not, it's kind of like saying, hey, I've got a fat gut. Like what what crunch can I do to fucking fix my abs? Like, well, it's not, it's more in the kitchen than it is in the fucking crunch, honestly. Like, no. and with training, it's that same way. Like there's not this magic bullet little technique that fucking fixes everything. It's like, you've got to put the time in, be consistent and set all of the other intangibles up for you to be successful or for the dog to be successful or for you to be successful training the dog. And so that's what it is. Uh, in terms of how interactive I am, uh, I get in, in the message boards uh, every every Monday morning and I answer questions. Sometimes, depending on my schedule, I may pop in throughout the week here and there uh, to you know, grab a question here or there, but most of the time it's, it's Monday mornings. It's 99 bucks for unlimited access to all the content. There's about 900 minutes of videos right now, and, and uh, I just finished filming a, a puppy series and a couple of uh, uh, adult supplementals that uh, that are going to get added here shortly. And my goal is to you know is to just you know drop in new new content you know when it when it makes sense when when I need to regularly uh, so that there's kind of a, a fresh and steady stream of. Uh, you know, of new, new things for people to watch. Um, the, the goal with it and, it, and it may sound like, you know, pie in the sky or, or you know, unreasonable, but is, is really is to transform, you know, Western society in, in terms of how they communicate with their dogs, you know, is that there are so many dogs out there that are just poorly trained or completely fucking untrained. And, and where, it, where I take it personal is, is the shelter stats. Is that you know 3.3 million dogs every year are surrendered to shelters. That's a lot of fucking dogs. Um, about 800,000 of them are euthanized every year. That comes out to over 2,000 dogs every fucking day in this country are getting the blue juice. Damn. You know, over 2,000 fucking dogs every fucking day are are put to sleep in this country, and most of them, not all, but most of them, are because of we teach them inadvertently behaviors that we don't like and condition them to do things that make them a pain in our ass, throw them in a fucking shelter and they end up getting fucking killed for it. And, and to me, that's a shit fucking deal on, on human beings part. And so, you know, if I can reach, you know, the, the bulk majority of the 90 million dog owners in this country that, that, you know, could use a little bit of assistance and help and teach them how to do it themselves, you know, not that you need to, you know, go spend fucking $5,000 on a board and train and have a professional trainer train your dog. Yeah, there are cases where that makes sense and, and I recommend it. But for most people, uh, you can do it yourself. And frankly, you should do it yourself. You know, it's it's good from a discipline standpoint. It's fantastic from a relationship standpoint with the dog. 
because now he's going to view you as this is the motherfucker that trained me, not this is the guy that's upkeeping the training that some other asshole did. It's that, you know, this guy taught me every fucking thing I know. You'll be proud of it. Your dog will will think of you higher for it. Uh, and your life will be much easier with, with all your dogs, uh, you know, that way because of it. So uh, I, I really do, you know, it's not just a fucking business idea for me. You know, for me, I, I truly want to help uh, you know, get that number of, of 2000 plus dogs every day being euthanized down to, you know, as close to zero as possible. Yeah. Um, and I think, you know, it starts with, with you, you know, it starts with, with you as an individual of, of, you know, putting the fucking time in, you know, being dedicated and, and being consistent and, and giving enough of a shit to try to train your own dog and, and learn how to communicate with them. Cause it's not complicated. It's, it's really simple stuff. It's just, most people are, are lazy and consistent and just don't know any better. Yeah. 2,000 dogs a day. That's, uh, that's pretty disheartening. Yeah. Uh, you know, I mean, the good news is, is that, you know, if you do the math on that, that's two and a half million that aren't. But, but the problem is, is that, you know, what, and what you don't want is, is for that two and a half million to be a considerable contributing factor to the, to the 3.3 the next year. And so that the dog is in a fucking hamster wheel turnstile revolving door in and out of a shelter because people don't know what the fuck they're doing and, and create more problems. And then, you know, the dog's in and out with three or four different owners over a couple of years and then ultimately gets euthanized because everybody does the same dumb shit with them. Um, you know, so to me, when, when you actually look at those numbers and realize, like, that's a lot of fucking dogs being killed every single day. Uh, and there are some of them, uh, you know, admittedly that that's probably the better option is, is euthanasia. But I will say that it's it's a fraction of the number that actually are euthanized. You know, most of them didn't start out that way. They weren't abused they weren't fucking abandoned. You know, they were, they were owned by people that just didn't know what the fuck they were doing. And it was a dog, you know, that probably has some thin nerves and is maybe a little environmentally weak. And, uh, and when you couple that with inconsistent, confusing, uh, unclear communication, that's a recipe for fucking disaster. Yeah. Uh, and that's, that's unfortunately where a lot of dogs end up, uh, you know, in that position because of. Yeah. Is, uh, did that play a role in, in you starting the uh, Warrior Dog Foundation? Um, sort of. I mean, in, in a matter of speaking in terms of, you know, I, I, didn't, I, I didn't want the same fate, especially for dogs that have served this country. Yes, absolutely. And that it was born out of necessity is that, you know, there is no federal funding for retired working dogs, whether it's military, police, you name it, you know, customs, border patrol, there, there is no fund set up, no grants, no facility that they can go to. There's no canine VA. There's nothing, you no. know? And, and so if the handler doesn't adopt the dog out, then the dogs get euthanized. Would you say the majority of handlers do adopt the dog? They do. Yeah. Do they? The overwhelming majority do. That's uh, good and to that's, hear. You know, for those of you listening to say, hey, I want to adopt one of those dogs. I, I love you for, for wanting to do that. Uh, realize, though, that, you know, of the 50 or so thousand working canines in this country at, at any given time, um, you know, 49,000 and change are adopted to their handlers. And those are the dogs that you're, that you're thinking of when you say, I would adopt one of those dogs. 
the dogs that we get are the dogs that their handlers can't take or won't take uh, or that even get washed out before they're even of a retirement age because they've bit too many people too many times uh, and just have too many fucking issues for that department to deal with and realize for a department to get to the point where they're going to wash a dog that they've got tens of thousands of dollars plus a handler salary and all the equipment and, and a couple of years of their time into like, they're, they're not going to get rid of that dog at the drop of a hat. You know, it, it's got to get to a point where that dog is such a liability to where it's, it's, uh, you know, it's better for them from a, a liability, uh, liability mitigation standpoint to get rid of the fucking dog, even if it means euthanizing it, than it does to keep it on board. Those are the dogs that we get. Okay. You know, so these aren't the dogs that like, oh, I've got, you know, nine grandbabies and four chihuahuas and I'd love to take one of these dogs. And I got, you know, again, bless your heart. But, you know, these dogs are, are nasty, frankly. I mean, uh, two of my three kennel staff uh, have been bit, like put in the hospital bit in the last fucking week and a half, you know, by two different dogs. And that happens, you know, fairly regularly. You know, um, so these dogs are, are used to, to doing that. They're very confident and comfortable fucking people up uh, and they enjoy it, frankly, most of them, you know. Yeah. And so, um, you know, we're, we're taking them understanding that, that that liability A exists and B, that, that it's our job to try to rehabilitate that out of them to the best of our ability. And with some dogs, we're successful. You know, there are dogs that we get in that we manage to spend, you know, several months with or even, you know, over a year in some cases and get them to a point where we can actually rehab them uh, sufficiently enough to, to live a normal house life, you know, in a civilian home. And we've got a number of dogs we've done that with. We've got a lot of dogs that we've not been able to do that with that, you know, we're, we're just basically a, a sanctuary for them and give them an opportunity to, to live out their life, uh, you know, in dignity and, and grace as best as we can, um, you know, to, to avoid having to just put them down like, like they were going to. I remember being at your place what uh, I think we're going on two years when I came down to do your podcast and uh, and uh, you showed me you know the dogs there and, and uh, I never had the opportunity to work with a dog like that but to see um, to see it's fucking eerie going in there I'm yeah. not, you know I'm not gonna bullshit you I'm not used to that uh, being around them. And um, and we're going to get into a lot more of this dog uh, psychology and, and kind of what they go through with their training and, and uh, what they're actually capable of tomorrow But um, when we do part two. But that was a real fucking eye-opener for me because I was the asshole that you talk about that's like, oh, yeah, if a dog's fucking bite me, I'm just going to punch the shit out of it and get it off me. And, and the minute we walked in there and I saw those, um, those dogs, which have, uh, you know, probably seen more fucking combat than me and you both. Um, <clears throat> I, I was, uh, I came to the realization that, uh, yeah, that's not going to happen. <laughs> so, yeah. um, and, uh, you know, and, 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 you know, it's fucking crazy is, is, to know, uh, you know, those dogs have done more than 99.9% of the people in this fucking country yeah. that um, sit at home and enjoy their pretty little fucking lives. And uh, and then to for you to say that they're getting euthanized after services. Yeah, it's criminal. Yeah. 
you know and yeah. uh so i mean i mean that's uh again that's fucking amazing that you started that and and uh and uh i can't fucking wait to <clears throat> breach into that subject tomorrow um um with the word dog foundation and and everything that those dogs do because it's 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 remarkable for sure yeah yeah, yeah. but um but uh well mike i kind of want to wrap this up for now um and then we will pick back up tomorrow and it's going to be all dogs but um you know if you don't mind giving us your handle on uh the ig and yeah. youtube and your websites sure so uh, on Instagram, just at mritland. Uh, the biggest thing is go to mikeritland.com or teamdog.pet. Uh, that's the online training that uh, I encourage everybody to sign up for uh, if you have a dog. Um, Twitter, it's same, at mritland, mikeritland on Facebook. Uh, the two websites are, again, mikeritland.com and trichos.com. That's, uh, both of those websites, you can you can get all the things that I have going on, including stuff on mic drop podcast um you know all the products that i have dog sales speaking engagements you name it uh warrior dog foundation is warriordogfoundation.org uh, and again you know we've got 26 dogs right now i've got another one coming tomorrow uh and one or two more coming in the next probably month so uh no federal funding uh i can't thank you know those who have already supported uh, enough for your support uh, but also realize that uh you know not there, there are no days off in taking care of them. It's a 24-7 gig, and we constantly have dogs coming in. So any any support from uh, from folks out there is uh, greatly appreciated. Uh, and that's, uh, that's the gist. Well, I think you're going to be getting a lot of support after this podcast. And uh, for those of you that do have pets that are dogs, go to teamdog.pet. And uh, by the time this episode airs, I'll already be deep in the middle of it. And... Uh, <laughs> Probably talking all kinds of shit to Mike on yeah. uh, why I <clears throat> on uh, on uh, how much my pets have improved. So yeah. and uh, donate to the Warrior Dog Foundation if uh, what he just said isn't enough. Then uh, I guarantee you, part two of this podcast will uh, strum your fucking heartstrings and force you to open those wallets and fucking make a donation like you should. So. Um, with that being said, Mike, you've got a hell of a fucking story, man. And um, um, I really wanted to cover your story and uh, not the dog story yet because I haven't heard, I haven't heard it, and I don't think anybody's heard it. And uh, I just, I mean, you're a fucking warrior, and your story is fucking incredible. And everybody that comes here. Um, you know, just like we were talking downstairs, a lot of people don't think that, you know, that uh, their story measures up to, to some some of the other guys. But I'm here to tell you that your fucking story uh, definitely measures up. So I appreciate it very much. And uh, I can't thank you enough for having me. And, uh, you know, the, sh the show that you've created in such a short time is uh, nothing short of fucking mind boggling. So I'm, I couldn't be prouder of you and, and happy to see you. Uh, not just the success you've had, but continue to, to just blow it out of the fucking water. I can't wait to see where it goes. So, I you appreciate and me both. Yeah. Thank you, man. Amen. Pick it up tomorrow. All right.
Finding suitable mental health medications can be a challenge. The GeneSight test may help. Did you know that genetics can play an important role in gaining insight on how a person may respond to various medications? Understanding this may help reduce medication trial and error. GeneSight is a genetic test that analyzes variations in DNA. It shows how genes may affect someone's metabolism or response to medications commonly prescribed to treat depression, anxiety, and other mental health conditions. Visit GeneSight.com for more information. The Bigger Pockets portfolio of podcasts are worthy of your investment. We're having a real conversation as real real estate investors. New episodes available every day. It's important to buy where it makes money and not necessarily where you want to travel to. Bigger Pockets on the market, rookie real estate or money podcast. The purpose of flipping is to create more cash so then you can reinvest into other types of properties. The Bigger Pockets podcast on YouTube or wherever you listen.